Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and in this episode, I will be covering Nemesis, the last Miss Marple written, not the last Miss Marple published, of course, but this is a big title within the canon. I know there are many of you that have been eagerly awaiting this episode. And as I've already mentioned, I am going to be joined on this episode by friend and colleague, Jamie Berntall. Catherine and I first got to know him through his book, Queering Agatha Christie, which is a literary analysis of Christie, unlike any other you'll read elsewhere. And I'm so excited to discuss Nemesis with him. But before we get to the ranking of this novel, we, of course, have a lot of other stuff to get through, Uh, starting with a little bit of housekeeping before we even get to Nemesis. I wanted to touch on At Bertram's Hotel, actually, a previous Miss Marple that we covered. So obviously, skip ahead if you haven't yet read At Bertram's Hotel a minute or two. But in that episode, Catherine and I did a whole lot of whining about how it made no sense that Elvira Blake cared about her mother's first marriage since she was obviously the daughter of her mother's second husband, Lord Coniston. And as a result of that fact, she would, of course, inherit upon Lord Coniston's death, even if she weren't named in his will. However, as one of our listeners pointed out to us recently, and I'm quoting now from the email, the real must be kept a secret at all costs issue is the bigamy as UK law treated children born in a marriage free from defects like bigamy as being the legitimate child of the man their mother was married to, even in cases where it was perfectly obvious that he was not. So even if it's perfectly obvious that Bess Sedgwick was not married to her first husband by the time she had Elvira Blake and that she was married to Elvira Blake's biological father, the law at that time would have still treated Bess Sedgwick's first husband as Elvira Blake's father. And we did not realize that. And apparently it wasn't until 1979 that uh, blood tests were able to be admitted in evidence at court for purposes of quote unquote illegitimate children uh, in cases of intestacy when matters of inheritance were in dispute. And I think even though it still irks me that Elvira Blake didn't have to worry about all this, I mean, we are told at the end of the novel that, well, she was actually named (laughs) in her father's will, so she didn't really have to worry about any of this anyway. It irks me that she didn't do her research on that end of things. Even so, I think her fears as to being disinherited and not having the money that uh, for her was such a necessity, it makes those fears much more reasonable. So just wanted to give Christy the credit that she is eternally due. And big thanks to that listener for writing in. I love hearing about these quibbles or clarifications or any thoughts that you might have about any of the texts or really anything else. I absolutely love hearing from all all of you. And I am working through at long last my backlog of messages and have been having just lots of wonderful communication with so many of you. Um, It's really a joy to be able to connect in this way, especially now that I'm doing this project uh, more so on my own, though I'm also so grateful to the friends like Jamie who are stepping in and uh, helping me out in these very episodes. So Let's get into Nemesis itself. And first off, let's just talk for a second about the title. This is surely one of Christie's better titles. It's a fantastic title. It's simple, it's memorable, and it's meaningful. 
So I think it's worth exploring for a moment just what or who a nemesis is. Uh, Nemesis is an ancient Greek goddess, essentially. Uh, She enacts retribution against those who succumb to hubris, which is just a fancy word for arrogance before the gods, right? There's a lot of tales of hubris gone very, very wrong in ancient Greek mythology. So she essentially gives folks what they've got coming to them. And generally, she's portrayed as a winged goddess with a whip or a dagger. She's sometimes called the daughter of justice. And this obviously very much fits the bill for who Miss Marple is, especially the Miss Marple that we have come to know and overanalyze in the course of this podcast project, lovingly overanalyze. Miss Marple has actually been compared to an Avenging Fury before, particularly in A Pocket Full of Rye, when she was very vengeful. And this, of course, fits just hand in glove with what Catherine in particular had been saying for years now about Dark Marple, her Dark Marple thesis that, you know, Miss Marple, yes, is a good woman. Yes, is a kindly woman. Yes, is a Christian woman, has lots of virtuous qualities, but there's something dark going on there under the surface. And it's an element that runs throughout the Miss Marple short stories and novels and just in Christie's depiction of her. And I think it's part of why we find her so fascinating and ultimately why we love her as much as we do. I know I do. So really, this title may as well be Dark Marple. And I'm 100% here for it. It just is a fantastic, fantastic title. And as we'll see, particularly appropriate for the depiction of Miss Marple in this novel. By the way, you can see the cover of the first UK edition on Wikipedia. And I really love it because it's a pink woolly scarf that forms a question mark with the ball of wool being the period. That too is very appropriate, uh, given that we have Miss Marple depicted with that scarf in this book. And she had been depicted that way in A Caribbean Mystery, which of course has a major connection to this book. And we will get into that in just a moment. That cover is, of course, also fabulous. Fabulously 70s. Boy, are we in the 70s now. And before I get into the publication history, I actually just want to mention super briefly, the dedication is to Daphne Honeybone. She did the typing for the Malouins. She was their typist. And, you know, judging by how rambly Christy got and how long those dictaphone rolls must have been, uh, I think she earned this dedication. So I just wanted to note that very, very sweet dedication for this book. So let's talk about the publication history. Nemesis was first published in the UK by Collins Crime Club, of course, in November, of course, of 1971. It was published in the US by Dodd Mead later that same year. Uh, It was serialized in the UK weekly magazine Woman's Realm in seven abridged installments from September to November of 1971. And it was actually also serialized in Canada in two abridged installments in the Star Weekly novel in October of 1971. And I should note that this is the first book published by Dame Agatha Christie. Oh, yes, she was made Dame Commander of the British Empire on January 1st, 1971. Uh, That was upon the announcement of that year's New Year's Honors list. Apparently, Edmund Cork had predicted this would happen all the way back in 1956. His predictions were finally borne out. Go, Agatha. I have this rather poignant 
factoid that many Christie biographers and scholars have noted. So as Christie worked on this novel in her latest exercise book, that is still how she was doing things all these years later, she wrote DBE at the top of the page. And of course, DBE stands for Dame Commander of the British Empire. Christie biographer Janet Morgan theorizes that it was, quote, as if she were murmuring encouragement to herself. I really love that because... She is now over 80 years old and continuing to do this. And it's just impressive that she had the wherewithal and the energy to write a book as wonderful as Nemesis. I'm just going to spoil right now. I certainly don't think this book is flawless. I have a lot to critique in Nemesis, but I love this book. Just a little more on Christie's name. This was her final name change. Uh, Even though among friends and neighbors, she was still called Lady Mallowan, as Max had been made commander of the Order of the British Empire in 1960 and then knighted in 1968. Uh, This meant that Agatha and Max had each earned knightly honors in their own right. Talk about a power couple. So just because it's fun and we all like to nerd out about anything having to do with Agatha Christie, these are her many, many name changes. She was born, of course, Agatha Miller. Then she became Agatha Christie. That's name change number one. Then she became Agatha Christie Mallowan. That's name change number two. Then she became Lady Mallowan. That's name change number three. And then as she was popularly, though perhaps not accurately known, Dame Agatha Christie, which is name change number four, our final name change. And that was how she would be known hereafter. Hence our email address for this podcast, allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Honestly, that's because allaboutagatha at gmail.com was already taken at the time. But I think that was a pretty solid solid plan B. Everyone knows what we're talking about there. It's interesting that she didn't actually achieve that status. She didn't become the dame till very late in her life. Sadly, we're only five years away from her passing. And I think if someone had asked me before I learned this information and doing research for this very episode, when did Agatha Christie become a dame? I would have guessed much earlier than 1971. All right, let's talk about Nemesis, finally. And specifically, let's talk about our victim. Unfortunately, this is a little bit of a spoiler. But if you're listening to this episode, then you are prepared to have this book spoiled. And I'm going to spoil away. Because for about half the book, the very crime that Miss Marple is supposed to be solving is an unknown entity. But eventually, we do learn that our main victim is Verity Hunt. A young woman of 18 or 19, uh, her parents died in a plane crash. And after she left school, she was taken in by the ladies at the old manor house in Jocelyn St. Mary, which we will get to in a moment. Verity is found dead about 30 miles away from the old manor house. She has been strangled with her face bashed in and her head smashed to a pulp, an extremely violent murder. She was also in the early stages of pregnancy. And this happens 10-ish years before the story begins. It's honestly unclear. One character says 10 or 12 years ago. Another says 7 or 8 years ago. Let's split the difference and say about 10 years ago. She was known to have been going out at the time with a young man with a spotty record named Michael Raphael. This man was arrested and tried and convicted for her murder. So he is in prison for this crime when the story begins. So that is our main victim, but we also have two other victims. First up is Nora Broad, a local girl with a reputation for being loose, who went missing around the same time as Verity Hunt. 
Just as an aside, I read her name the whole time as Brode, but that's because I'm from Los Angeles where the philanthropist Eli Brode uh, has been such a mammoth influence. He actually passed away recently. He has endowed not just an art museum, but many theaters and, and just has engaged in lots of other philanthropic endeavors. So my default was to say Nora Brode the whole time, but I'm pretty sure it's Nora Broad. As for poor Nora, some think she hoofed it, that she she just up and left, whereas others theorize she's dead too, but her body was never found. Spoiler, she dead. Uh, and our final victim is Elizabeth Temple, who is the former headmistress of the Fallowfield School. And this character is one among a type that is well-established in the Christie canon by now. That would be the brilliant headmistress of a girls' school. Alas, she is killed in the course of this story by way of one of Christie's more improbable methods, which, as we all know by now, is really saying something. Miss Temple is killed when a giant rock, a boulder, rolls down a hill and it crushes her in its path. Let's move right on into the suspects, uh, which is also a little bit of a curious situation here because often in a Christie novel, we have a closed circle of suspects or we don't have a closed circle of suspects. Here, I would say that we have a closed-ish circle. Uh, Miss Marple goes on a tour in the course of this book. That is kind of the mise-en-scene, if you will, of the novel. And there are a group of people on this tour with her. They travel around on a bus, and that seems pretty closed uh, to us as mystery readers. And it is. But Miss Marple also makes some pit stops <laughs> on this tour. It's really just one big pit stop, though she goes back and forth between the hotel where all the people on the tour are staying and this house. And this would be the old manor house in Jocelyn St. Mary. And there are a couple of people staying at the house as well. So that opens up the closed circle a little bit, and it just makes the nature of this suspect list a little fuzzier than it normally is in a Christie. Uh, it also means that there's a lot of people. So I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. But on the bus tour, we have Mrs. Geraldine Risley Porter, who is an officious matron, well-preserved, well-dressed, her voice loud and dictatorial. We've come across people like this before. And she has brought along with her a companion of sorts. That would be her young niece, Miss Joanna Crawford, a competent girl, as well as being an attractive one. And Joanna happens to be very much interested in Mr. Emlyn Price, who is also on this bus tour. He's one of the shaggy-haired young men Christy has been loving to hate for a good decade now, ever since The Pale Horse in 1961. Can you believe The Pale Horse was 10 years ago? I believe that that was the first of her books to mention the teddy boy type. And at one point here, Emlyn is described as wearing a splendid array of fancy boots and a leather jerkin and brilliant emerald green trousers, his hair looking even wilder than usual. So he's a total teddy boy. Also on this tour, we have Professor Wanstead, a bushy-browed and genial man who specializes in pathology and psychology. He becomes Miss Marple's confidant of sorts, but of course that in no way takes him out of the running as the murderer. This is Christie after all. No one is safe. We also have Miss Cook and Miss Barrow, who are two middle-aged ladies traveling together. Miss Cook looks oddly familiar to Miss Marple, but she can't quite place her. And then there's Mr. Casper, who is foreign. He hardly speaks any English. Uh, so need we say more <laughs> as to his suspicious nature? Apparently not, since as Miss Marple puts it, nobody appeared to Miss Marple likely to be a murderer except possibly Mr. Casper. And that was probably foreign prejudice. 
So, hey, self-awareness is the first step toward recovery. There are a bunch more people on this tour. Uh, we've got Mrs. Sanborn, who's the tour's leader, the retired military man, Colonel Walker, and his missus. Uh, the American couple, Henry and Mamie Butler, the architect, Richard Jameson, the elderly traveling pair of Miss Lumley and Miss Bentham. But I'm just going to spoil up front and admit that they are all minor characters at best. They did not do it. You will not be hearing from them again. Uh, though I do have to mention that when Miss Marple suspects Richard Jameson for a hot second, she wonders whether a, oh yes, priest's hole doesn't figure into whatever mystery she's supposed to be solving since he's an architect. Gotta love a priest's hole reference in a Christie novel. But then we also have the inhabitants of the old manor house, the tour adjacent setting <laughs> for this novel. The three sisters who are unquestionably weird sisters who live in the old manor house are Mrs. Lavinia Glynn, who is plump and good-natured and genial. She's also the only one of the sisters who got married, though she is a widow now. Then we have Miss Clotilde Bradbury Scott. She is tall and elegant and educated and mannishly attractive, if a bit severe. She's said to have a Clytemnestra look about her. And finally, we have Miss Anthea Bradbury Scott, who is vague and scatterbrained, a kind of Ophelia of 50. And we know how Christie likes to describe people as variations on Ophelia. Let's never forget poor Norma Resterick in Third Girl, who is essentially described as an ugly Ophelia. I'd say Anthea gets off easy in comparison. So those are our suspects as we enter the world as it appears to be. And we open on Miss Marple, who is even older than the last time we saw her. So much so that when she reads the name Jason Raphael in the deaths section of the newspaper, it takes her a while to remember that this is the man she met in the Caribbean, in the made-up island of St. Honoré, in the course of a Caribbean mystery. And I'll just note, as to pronunciation, in the Caribbean mystery episode, we pronounced Jason Raphael's last name as Raphael, which is how at least one of the adaptations of a Caribbean mystery pronounced it. It seems that the predominant pronunciation is Raphael. I suppose you could say Raphael as well, but I am going to go ahead and say Raphael anytime I am called upon to say that last name in the course of this episode, which will be many times. I mentioned that Ms. Marple was reading the newspaper when she came across the name Jason Raphael, and I wasn't going to comment on all of the chatter in these first couple of pages as to the newspapers Ms. Marple reads, because quite honestly, I don't have the cultural capital to do so as an American, but Christy spends a few delightful paragraphs talking about the different newspapers that Ms. Marple reads. The first is called The Daily News Giver, and the second is The Times. Ms. Marple is not happy because these newspapers have changed a lot. And of course, the changing times is a perennial theme in Miss Marple novels, especially these later Miss Marple novels. And specifically, her problem is that in The Daily Newsgiver, there is all sorts of information within its pages. It now provided, I'm quoting from the book here, articles on men's tailoring, women's dress, female heartthrobs, competitions for children, and complaining letters from women, and had managed pretty well to shove any real news off any part of it but the front page, or to some obscure corner where it was impossible to find it. Miss Marple, being old-fashioned, preferred her newspapers to be newspapers and give you news. Then we move on to The Times, which Miss Marple reads in the afternoon, the Daily News Giver is for the morning. The Times is for the afternoon. 
here's what Christie writes about that. Not that the Times was what it used to be. The maddening thing about the Times was that you couldn't find anything anymore. Instead of going through from the front page and knowing where everything else was so that you passed easily to any special articles on subjects in which you were interested, there were now extraordinary interruptions to this time-honored program. And like I said, I would not have commented on this because I had no idea how tethered that might be to the reality of reading newspapers in 1971, especially for an older person like Miss Marple or Agatha Christie. But fortunately, one of you, dear listeners, wrote in to me with a delightful email I'm going to quote from right now. Dear Kemper, when I started rereading Nemesis for your next episode, the first few paragraphs of the book triggered so many family memories, I thought I would share these with you. The Times, until the takeover by Rupert Murdoch in 1981, was nicknamed the Thunderer. Up until the late 60s, the front page always looked the same, i.e. narrow columns of personal ads and notices with the news contained inside. The Times had been sold by Lord Astor to the Canadian proprietor Roy Thompson five years before the publication of Nemesis, and Thompson began introducing changes to the format. The biggest one was putting news on the front page. And then this listener uh, talks about a personal connection, actually, to the paper because her father was, in fact, the Times' Washington correspondent for many years, which is very cool. But I found this particularly fascinating. This is more about the Times back then. Everything had once had its fixed place in the Times. Births, deaths, marriages, also court circular, law reports, auction sales reports, and so on. And then it didn't, as it was modernized for a changing world. Agatha and Miss Marple were having to adjust. So that's fascinating. And I love knowing that, that uh, this was ripped from the headline, so to speak, (laughs) to get meta about it. And the final observation from this lovely email that I will share with you is a little bit of theorizing as to which actual newspaper the Daily Newsgiver might be. As for the Daily Newsgiver, this could have been the Daily Mail or Daily Express. They were far more serious newspapers in those days and would have been respectable journals to have on the breakfast tables of St. Mary Mead. And I have heard that the Daily Mail in particular, which I will just be honest with the folks across the pond, definitely has a reputation. I would not expect the Daily Mail of today to be on uh, Miss Marple's breakfast table. Let's just put it that way. I did have a sense that it has gone through an evolution. Some might call it a devolution over the years. So just fascinating. I'm a big fan of newspapers, actually. I try to read them as much as I can. I think it's a shame that they're not Uh, in our daily lives as much as they used to be, Uh, not necessarily even as physical objects, although I do have a lot of nostalgia for physical newspapers and my hands getting inky and reading the comics pages when I was a child on Sundays, et cetera, et cetera. I know Catherine actually was a true savant when it came to doing the crossword which she certainly did on physical paper back in the day. Though, like all of us, I know that she was not averse to doing a little bit of crossword play on her phone. Apps make all that sort of thing very convenient these days, but I do have a little bit of wistfulness for the olden days of physical newspapers. So thank you to that listener for that little trip down memory lane. And that is how we open in Nemesis in typical Miss Marple fashion, especially a late Miss Marple novel like this. After Miss Marple comes across that name of Jason Raphael and eventually remembers who he was, nothing much of note happens uh, between then and a week later, other than the fact that Miss Marple runs across a woman she's never met before in the lane outside her garden named Miss Bartlett. And they have a pleasant conversation about gardening. 
Anywho, a week later, Miss Marple gets a letter from Messrs. Broadrib and Schuster, solicitors and notaries public in Bloomsbury. And they tell her they have a proposition for her. So naturally she goes. And to her surprise, she learns that Jason Raphael has written her a long letter in which he engages her services as one with, quote, a natural flair for justice, which has led to her having a natural flair for crime. Jason Raphael wants her to solve a mystery, but he won't tell her anything about the mystery. This is odd (laughs) and perhaps a little hard to swallow. But then, you know, Jason Raphael was eccentric. We do know this from a Caribbean mystery. Oh, and there's one other little detail. If Ms. Marple is successful in solving this unknown mystery, he is going to give her 20,000 pounds. And let's remind ourselves, this is 1971. 20,000 pounds in 1971 is 300,000 pounds in today's money or $400,000 for my American compatriots. That is a lot of money. That's almost half a mil. Miss Marple immediately starts fantasizing about seeing an opera in Covent Garden, complete with an overnight stay in a hotel. Uh, she also imagines eating a whole partridge and a box of Merrill Glacé. I had no idea what that was. I had to look that up. Merrill Glacé are candied chestnuts. And now I am fantasizing about eating a box of Merrill Glacé. That sounds delicious. I found a little touching that Miss Marple's immediate fantasies upon acquiring such wealth were as simple as they were. But of course, I think that's the point. Miss Marple is at heart a simple person. And I mean that in the best of ways. She lives a good and a simple life. And I think those simple pleasures are absolutely what would appeal to her and what she would think of as worth the expense, given that she was coming into some money. So that rang very true for me. And Mr. Raphael's letter ends with this quote from the book of Amos. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. So Miss Marple, of course, accepts this challenge. And she has to try to figure out what this mystery could possibly be. The first thing she does is to write a letter to Miss Prescott, who we met in a Caribbean mystery. She was the sister of Canon Prescott. They were both there in St. Honoré. And from Miss Prescott, she gets the address of Esther Walters, who was Mr. Raphael's secretary and also a character in a Caribbean mystery. And then she goes and she sees Esther Walters, who is actually named Esther Anderson now. She has gotten married since her ordeal in a Caribbean mystery. And while this conversation is diverting, Miss Marple really doesn't learn anything. But then she receives another letter from Mr. Raphael, and this one is in the post. It tells her that she'll receive a communication from a travel bureau in London in two days. And indeed she does from the famous houses and gardens of Great Britain. Mr. Raphael has booked her on tour number 37, which starts from London and will be two to three weeks in duration. So Miss Marple goes to London. She stays overnight in a hotel that it is noted is not Bertram's hotel. (laughs) And she embarks on this coach tour. And I will just pause to note that this happens to be the second Christie mystery in a row I'm covering that takes place on a coach since our last episode was Double Sin. That is totally a coincidence. And I mention it because coincidences really do happen in real life, as hard as they may be to swallow in fiction. More on that later, in fact, (laughs) as we get into this story. So we might think that at this point, a little over 50 pages into the book, the mystery really starts cooking. But we would be wrong. Because Miss Marple, even though she is now on this tour, still 
has no idea what she is supposed to be solving here. And she basically just starts making wild surmises about everyone she meets on the tour. Poor Mr. Casper, being the sole foreigner, gets the bulk of that suspicion, as I mentioned when I was going through the suspect list. And in going through that suspect list, I've mentioned all the passengers on this tour, which tallies up to 15 not including Miss Marple or Mrs. Sanborn, who is their guide. So for about a day and a half, nothing much happens. Miss Marple finally does have a fruitful conversation with someone on this tour. And it's with by far the most interesting person in the bus besides Miss Marple. And that would be Elizabeth Temple. So Miss Marple mentions Jason Raphael's name to Miss Temple. And Miss Temple informs her without naming any names that she happens to have known the girl who Mr. Raphael's son was engaged to. But the marriage didn't go through because alas, the girl died. And when Miss Marple asks why the girl died, Miss Temple responds, love, which she goes on to call, and I'm quoting here, one of the most frightening words there is in the world. Now, here would be an excellent opportunity, I think, for Ms. Marple to ask some follow-up questions, you know, for clarification, but uh, she does not, or at least the chapter ends on this enigmatic note. And when we pick back up, Ms. Marple is not speaking to Ms. Temple anymore. She is confronting Ms. Cook about the fact that the reason she looks so familiar is that Ms. Cook is the woman who introduced herself in the lane outside Ms. Marple's house. Uh, but when she did, she said that her name was Ms. Bartlett. And even though Ms. Marple presses this Ms. Cook on having been in St. Mary Mead, she doesn't call out the fact that she used a different name. Um, she doesn't call it out outwardly to Ms. Cook or even inwardly to herself, since we're very much privy to Ms. Marple's thoughts in this book, which is one of the best things about this book. But she doesn't acknowledge the name change to Professor Wanstead a bit later. To me, it reads a little bit like Christy forgetting this detail about the name change while Ms. Marple is interacting with Ms. Cook. It's just awkward, and it's a rare slip-up uh, in what is otherwise, I think, a remarkably coherent and cohesive late career Christie. This book is by no means tightly written. I've already begun alluding to how loosely constructed, especially the first half of this book is. It really takes a long time to get going, but the loose ends are tied up at the end and it does make sense. While it might ramble a bit, it is never at the expense of coherence. And that already puts it a cut or two above several of these Christies that we've covered recently. So the next thing that happens is that Lavinia Glynn shows up in Jocelyn St. Mary, where the coach tour has stopped. Uh, and she invites Miss Marple to her house with her sisters. And this invitation is actually coming per the instructions of, you guessed it, Jason Raphael. Mr. Raphael has suggested that while the coach tour stops in Jocelyn St. Mary, that Miss Marple should spend some time at the old manor house with these three sisters, that she might be more comfortable there. And the old manor house is just a 10 minute walk from the hotel where Miss Marple and all the other coach tour people have been staying. That would be the Golden Boar. So Miss Marple accepts since anything Mr. Raphael has arranged is obviously something she's going to go along with. I mean, she wants that 20 thou. Those marron glacé are not going to eat themselves. So this is how Miss Marple ends up at the old manor house with the three weird sisters, Lavinia, Clotilde, and Anthea. Not that they're all that weird on the surface, except maybe for Anthea. She's kind of weird. Uh, but Miss Marple can feel from the get-go, and Christy really does put us on notice here. She plays fair, as she always does. Uh, Miss Marple can feel that something is not right in this house. She doesn't know what is not right, but something is amiss. The atmosphere is off. 
And then, of course, there's the garden with its ruined greenhouse, which is little more than a mound now, over which a flowering shrub has proliferated, a polygonum baldshuanicum. I'm sure I am wildly mispronouncing that, but it is just everywhere. It grows like a weed. And Anthea in particular is distressed at the decayed state of the garden. And she really wants to restore it to its former glory. She kind of won't shut up about it. (laughs) So the next morning, this would be the first morning after Miss Marple has come to stay at the old manor house. Miss Marple has a good gossip with an elderly maid who works for the sisters. I don't believe that we ever get a name for this elderly maid, actually, but she gives her a lot of information. She tells Miss Marple about how there used to be a girl living at the old manor house, and this girl's parents were friends of Clotilde's. Uh, but when they died, the girl came to live at the house, and Clotilde was devoted to her. She treated her like her own daughter. But tragically, this girl met a man, and then the man murdered her. She was found strangled, her head beaten to a pulp, and we're told that Clotilde is the one who had to go identify her. We're also told that there were other girls who went missing around this time. Girls everyone suspected this same man had also murdered. And the man's name? Michael Raphael. So finally, we are getting to the mystery that Jason Raphael wants Miss Marple to look into. I.e., did Michael Raphael... Mr. Raphael's son actually killed this girl, whose name we do eventually learn, but not for a really long time, is Verity Hunt. Did Michael Raphael, in fact, kill Verity Hunt? That's what she has to find out. And she resolves to ask Miss Temple about it since, per their previous conversation, Miss Temple knew Verity Hunt. She knew this girl. But unfortunately, Miss Marple learns the next morning that Miss Temple has been crushed by a rock that rolled down a hillside on a little excursion that the tour was doing in the area. I appreciated, by the way, that the chapter detailing this incident is titled Accident, which felt like a callback to that superb short story of Christie's. Check out our episode for that story if you haven't yet listened to it. It's really one of my favorites, and it was one of Catherine's favorites, too. So Joanna and Emlyn, the two youngins on this bus tour, they are positive that they saw a figure in a bright red and black checked pullover in and among the rocks, and that this person definitely could have pushed one of the rocks onto the path and intentionally hurt Miss Temple in that way. They aren't sure if it was a man or a woman, but they think it was probably a man. Miss Temple, by the way, has been rushed to the hospital. She's in very bad shape. It's all very touch and go, and everyone is horrified. And at this point, Professor Wanstead admits to Miss Marple that he is on the tour because Jason Raphael asked him to keep an eye on Miss Marple. And this is where Professor Wanstead becomes Miss Marple's confidant. He tells her how in the course of consulting work he does for the home office, the governor of a prison came to him unhappy about one of his prisoners who he didn't think was guilty because I'm sure that happens a lot in real life. Um, But this prisoner, of course, is Michael Raphael. And he's been convicted of the murder of Verity Hunt, and he is sitting in prison. This is the point at which we get into what struck me as the most problematic and difficult section of the book. Because Professor Wanstead opines about Michael Raphael's past history of sexual assault and how Michael Raphael isn't actually all that bad of a guy. I'm just going to leave it there for now, but have no fear that I and I believe Jamie will have a lot more to say about this when we get to the rankings and in particular the depictions stuck in their time section. But suffice to say, he doesn't think that Michael Raphael could have brutally murdered Verity Hunt as he is supposed to have done. So at long last, we are more than halfway through the book. Miss Marple 
truly has her marching orders here. She has to figure out who actually killed Verity Hunt. And if it turns out that Michael Raphael actually did kill her, then so be it. So after Professor Wanstead has told Miss Marple all of this, they've had a little confidential tete-a-tete together in the town. They see Anthea Bradbury Scott dropping off a big parcel at the post office. Let's just note that. Then Professor Wanstead brings Miss Marple to the hospital where Miss Temple is unfortunately dying. But fortunately for us, she lingers long enough to not only summon Miss Marple to her bedside, but whisper a bunch of cryptic stuff, such as, which of them? One of them, but which? Find out. It may be dangerous for you, but you'll find out, won't you? Find out about Verity. Truth. Another name for truth. Verity. Goodbye. Do your best. And then she dies. Okay. (laughs) This is not the first time we've had a character utter a bunch of cryptic words before dying in a Christie novel. It definitely has a whiff, one might say a stench of Christie thriller about it, but we will stomach it. And from there, Miss Marple does what Miss Marple does, i.e. she investigates. And she investigates in a lot of different ways, but there's one moment in particular I just absolutely loved, which is when she is back at the old manor house. She's staying with the sisters yet again, because the tour, of course, is not going anywhere. They're just kicking it at the Golden Boar in Jocelyn St. Mary. So she's sitting in the old manor house and knitting. And she just throws out this one word to the assembled company, the three sisters. And she says, Verity. And now I'm quoting from Christy, throwing it as one throws a pebble into a stream solely to observe what the result, if any, would be. I just love that. I love Miss Marble doing that because I can see her doing it and it's so simple and it's so devious and it really works because she gets a lot back from that pebble thrown into the stream. It's very clear that Verity's death has affected these three sisters deeply, especially Clotilde, who's, again, we're told, the one who had to identify the body. This was very distressing for her. One of the other investigative things Miss Marple does is to pretend to be scatterbrained, which she's very good at doing. And she does this in the local post office so that she can get the address that Anthea Bradbury Scott sent that parcel to. And she gives that address to Professor Wanstead and she asks him to track down the parcel. So let's just keep track of that little side plot as we move forward. The inquest happens. And once it does, the tour has to finally move on from Jocelyn St. Mary. And some people leave the tour altogether, which is understandable. Um, Others are going to stick with it. Miss Cook and Miss Barrow, interestingly, query Miss Marple as to what she is doing before indicating that, oh, well, huh, what a quinky dink. They are also going to stay in the area Uh, because Miss Marple isn't going anywhere. She has scored a third and final invite to the old manor house because she wants to stick around to query some of the locals about this Nora Broad person. And that, of course, is another young woman who went missing around the same time as Verity Hunt and who's never been heard from since that time. Also, at this point in the book, Miss Marple has a tete-a-tete with Archdeacon Brabazon, who comes down for the inquest. This is the person Miss Temple was actually going to visit at the end of the tour. And from the Archdeacon, Miss Marple learns that Michael Raphael and Verity Hunt were all set to get married. And even though the Archdeacon didn't think they would necessarily have a successful marriage, he was prepared to marry them because it was clear to him that they were in love. So they had set a date and it was all set to happen, but unfortunately they never showed up for the ceremony. They never even sent him word. And of course, Verity's body was then found. It's all very tragic. 
Archdeacon Brabazon's theory is, wait for it, that Michael Raphael must have a split personality disorder. He actually says that. He even references Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. According to the Archdeacon, apparently Michael's dark side impelled him to kill the girl he loved. And for that, he is rotting in jail and he will continue to rot in jail. And that is really where we are at the end of the world as it appears to be. But fortunately, we do have a few, a very few, but a few clues to bridge us on over to the world as it actually is. So clue number one. I mentioned this before. There is something weird happening in the old manor house. Christy is so fair with this because it is noted again and again, weird, weird stuff happening in that place. And the deduction here that an astute reader might be able to make is to realize that the coach tour in this book is in effect a red herring. And it's a very clever red herring, also a frustrating red herring, I think, because the bus tour is such a Christie-ish setting for a mystery. And I think a lot of people, as they settle into this book, think, ooh, this is going to be fun. We have our closed circle on the bus tour. There's going to be a murder on it. And yes, technically that happens. Miss Temple is murdered, but it's just fuzzier than that. And the reason why it's fuzzy is that so much of this book takes place at the old manor house. And an astute reader, I think, will realize about three quarters of the way through the book that the mystery is really centered on the three weird sisters. We can't get any further with this clue in terms of figuring out which of those three sisters done it. Because, you know, it could be Lavinia Glynn wearing a mask, or it could be Anthea Bradbury Scott telling us over and over again who she really is. We've seen Christy do both of those things so many times in her books. It could even be the sister who falls between the two of them, the one who seems just right. Or could she be just wrong? We shall see. Clue number two, Nora Broad's body was never found. The deduction here is that this is a Christie novel, people. A missing body means that there is some sort of mischief afoot. Fast forward, if you haven't yet read The Body in the Library, an early Miss Marple novel. Uh, but if we take that book as a model, we can be reasonably sure that there was some sort of a switcheroo affected here, meaning the dead body that was found around the same time Nora Broad disappeared was actually Nora and not Verity Hunt. Yes, that is a big leap, but I think it's a possible leap for an astute reader to make, especially if that reader has been reading closely and has been reading lots and lots of Christie's up to this point. Clue number three, we are told twice about one third of the way through the book, and then again about two thirds of the way through the book, that Clotilde is the one who identified Verity's body. The deduction here is that if there really was a switcheroo, that means that Clotilde had to be involved because she is the one who identified that dead body as Verity Hunt. And she must have misidentified it, which means that she is involved in all of this somehow. Again, a big leap, but I think a possible leap for an extremely astute reader to make. Clue number four. In addition to being devoted to Verity, Clotilde apparently gave this local village girl, Nora Broad, a number of gifts. Uh, we get this information from Nora's mother's cousin, Mrs. Blackett. She tells us that Clotilde, quote, gave her a very nice scarf and a pretty dress once. Ah, she was very kind, Miss Clotilde was. Tried to make Nora take more interest in her schooling. Now, why would the erudite Clotilde Bradbury Scott, who knows three foreign languages, interest herself in Nora Broad? Well, the deduction here is that she was plotting a double murder corpse switcheroo, of course. That's why. All right, our final clue. 
Clotilde said multiple times to have a Clytemnestra look about her. The deduction is that Clytemnestra murdered her husband. And Christy even tells us that Clytemnestra was a murderer. Clotilde is a murderer. Never say that Christy doesn't play fair. All right, let's get into the world as it actually is. So when Miss Marple goes back to the old manor house for visit number three, I think she might be testing the limits of social etiquette here. <laughs> to her and the three sisters' surprise, Miss Cook and Miss Barrow also show up. And though there isn't enough food to ask them to dinner, they are asked to come back for coffee after dinner. And they do. And during coffee, Miss Cook advises Miss Marple a bit rudely not to drink the coffee. This is what she says. Coffee, I mean, at this time of night, you won't sleep properly. And Miss Marple protests that she's used to drinking coffee in the evening, but Miss Cook insists. She says, yes, but this is very strong, good coffee. I should advise you not to drink it. <laughs> Emphasis mine. But Miss Marple finally agrees. Sadly, Clotilde then accidentally spills that coffee and offers Miss Marple some hot milk instead. So Miss Marple agrees. Miss Cook and Miss Barrow then leave, having to come back several times for various things they've forgotten. It's all a bit annoying. Uh, Miss Marple takes her milk up to her room. She gets ready for bed. She gets in bed. And then she waits. And at three o'clock in the morning, her door opens very slowly. And Miss Marple turns on her bedside lamp, revealing Clotilde Bradbury Scott. This is a chilling sequence, actually. It all plays out in the moment, and it's very effectively done. Miss Marple informs Clotilde that she did not drink her milk because I did not think it would be very good for me. And Clotilde is outraged and asks who Miss Marple is. And we know what Miss Marple is going to say right before she says it. She is nemesis, of course. And Miss Marple calmly informs Clotilde that she knows she killed both Nora Broad and Verity Hunt years ago, and that she killed Elizabeth Temple days ago. The reason she killed Miss Temple, of course, is that Miss Temple was on her way to speak with Archdeacon Brabazon, and Clotilde was worried that between the two of them, they might have been able to figure out what had actually happened all those years ago. Clotilde indicates she is now going to kill Miss Marple. But our ever-resourceful Miss Marple pulls out a whistle from under her pillow, and she blows on it, Rose from Titanic style. And just like Rose, she is saved. Come about! Miss Cook steps out from the wardrobe in the bedroom. Miss Barrow appears in the doorway between the bedroom and the hall. Clotilde isn't going anywhere. And unusually for Christy, who I think tends to use certainly lucre and even loathing uh, much more often as underlying motivations for her murders, what we have here is an underlying motivation of love. The reason Clotilde killed Verity is that she loved Verity too much. And that's what Elizabeth Temple meant when she said love was one of the most frightening words there is in the world. And we're going to talk a lot more, uh, Jamie and I, about the precise nature of Clotilde's love for Verity and vice versa uh, when we get to the rankings. But as Ms. Marple explains in an extremely expansive and extremely official denouement, the way Clotilde pulled this off uh, was as follows. She gave Verity some sort of poison that put her to sleep, a sleep from which she never woke up. And then Clotilde buried Verity under the ruined greenhouse in the garden, and she made sure that the polygonum bald grew over it. 
And Miss Marple theorizes that Anthea didn't know all of this, but she knew enough to drive her to distraction, which is why Anthea appears to be so scatty and even a bit insane. This secret's been weighing on her over the years. And of course, the body whose face was disfigured and whose head was smashed to a pulp is not Verity's body. That is Nora Bratz, the person who Miss Temple lured into her car. Uh, she drove Nora to a remote spot, and then she killed her in this brutal and savage way, dressing Nora's body in Verity's clothes and leaving some of Verity's things in the vicinity. And it was Nora who was in the early stages of pregnancy. And then all Clotilde had to do was to say that it was Verity when she was called upon to identify the body and to make sure that everyone knew about Verity and Michael Raphael going out together. And hey, presto, she pins the murder on Michael Raphael, who she hates because, of course, Michael Raphael was the one who was going to take Verity away. They were about to get married. Now, as for that parcel, which Professor Wanstead has tracked down for Miss Marple, that had the red and black checked pullover in it. It was Clotilde who dressed in that pullover so that she would be conspicuous and someone would see her. She made the rock roll down that hill and collide with Miss Temple. She got very lucky <laughs> and apparently she would have made a very good bowler. Again, not one of Christie's more convincing murders, but that is what happens. We also learned that after Miss Marple had been removed from her bedroom after her showdown with Clotilde, uh, that Clotilde Bradbury Scott drank the milk she'd prepared for Miss Marple, thereby killing herself. And we also get a scene at the end in which Miss Marple meets the about-to-be-freed Michael Raphael, who seems shell-shocked and is underwhelming at best uh, in this scene, though we are clearly supposed to be overjoyed that he is going to be a free man. More on Michael Raphael's past and how perhaps a modern reader's feelings about him may be different from what Christie intended. But in our final scene, we get Miss Marple visiting Jason Raphael's lawyers, Messieurs Broadrib and Schuster, and they make arrangements for the disbursement of that 20,000 pounds. Cha-ching! Maron glace time! My mouth is already watering. It's actually a really moving send-off for Miss Marple in the final pages. Again, this is the final Miss Marple that Christy wrote. And Jamie and I will discuss that as well in greater detail in just a few moments. The end! Don't Touch That Dial will be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or a view wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christie fans such as yourselves to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming Before we get to that rankings conversation, I do want to cover the English language adaptations that exist for this novel. We have two of them. First up is the BBC Joan Hickson adaptation. This is the eighth of the 12 Miss Marple novels featured in this series, and it aired in February of 1987. 
A little awkwardly, Nemesis appeared before A Caribbean Mystery, since of course Nemesis, the book, very much comes after A Caribbean Mystery and references it several times. As you may remember, the rights to A Caribbean Mystery were a bit tied up when this BBC series was in production and airing episodes, so it took some time to untie those rights, which is why A Caribbean Mystery was one of the last adaptations done. Donald Pleasant played Jason Raphael when they eventually did do A Caribbean Mystery, whereas here he's played by Frank Gatliff. But I do have a fun little connection between the two adaptations, and I have to imagine this was intentional. Apparently, the hymn sung at Elizabeth Temple's funeral in this episode is the same hymn sung at Victoria's funeral in the Joan Hickson adaptation of A Caribbean Mystery. I actually got this fun fact from an IMDb trivia page. (laughs) Um, That's not the last Fun fact I will get from an IMDb trivia page in this episode. Who knew IMDb could be as useful uh, as it is? I'll have to read those pages a little more closely in future. And I learned from my good friend Mark Aldridge in his book, Agatha Christie on Screen, that the place where Jason Raphael in this adaptation, in Nemesis, dies is actually Berg Island in Devon. And that was Christie's direct inspiration for Evil Under the Sun. It's also where the Suchet adaptation of that novel was filmed. And it was potentially an inspiration for And Then There Were None as well, the island in that novel. This is a good adaptation. I think this is one of the stronger of the BBC Joan Hickson films. Margaret Tyzak plays Clotilde, and she's very good. As Mark writes, after an unsuccessful attempt to cast Margaret Tyzak in A Murder is Announced, she's finally brought on board to play the complex character of Clotilde Bradbury Scott. Uh, fast forward if you haven't read A Murder is Announced, but I have to imagine that they wanted her to play Letty Blacklock. She would have been fantastic in that role as well. And I mentioned that that final sequence in which Miss Marple confronts Clotilde Bradbury Scott in her bed is effective in the novel. And it's really effective in this adaptation as well. And fortunately, Mark Aldridge agrees with me. So I must be onto something. Uh, He writes that the story's conclusion is one of the most chilling of the series and shows Miss Marple at her strongest. Having avoided a poisoned drink offered by the murderer, she calmly listens as they explain how the murder occurred out of love and its resulting jealousy. Miss Marple will not tolerate their excuses or any misguided sense that the murderer had done their best for the victim. She's safe now from any unsuitable princes. Sleeping beauty lies in the ruins. And flowers grow round her. Yes. Yes. No, Miss Bradbury Scott. She's a rotted corpse and there is no one to kiss her awake. You tell it like it is, Joan Hickson slash Miss Marple. (laughs) I think this is a great moment. And I have to say, even though it's a departure from the book, I quite like that in this version, Miss Marple is there when Clotilde drinks the milk. She essentially lets her drink the milk. It's a bit Poirotian, but it rings true for me. I also really liked Professor Wanstead's summing up of Miss Marple. She looks so harmless, doesn't she? Her camouflage is perfect because she is partly just what she seems, a gossipy old village lady. But her logic is ruthless and her powers of synthesis formidable. And above all, she never lets go. I'll never let go. I promise. 
one curiosity is that we have an invented character in Miss Marple's nephew. It is not Raymond West, but Lionel Peel, whose wife has thrown him out of the house and who accompanies Miss Marple on her tour. He's fine. He's supposed to be comic relief. You can tell the adaptation thinks he's funnier than he is. But otherwise, it's faithful as usual. And this is also when the series still had good production values. It's really firing on all cylinders. It's a great adaptation. One final thing I'll note is that Michael Raphael is a bit of a different character in this adaptation as compared to in the book. And that is going to be the case in the next adaptation. And I think this reflects a little bit of the discomfort as to his depiction in the text, specifically as someone who has a prior history of sexual assault. We have no sense of that here. And when the story begins, he is actually homeless. He was arrested for Verity Hunt's murder, but never brought to trial. So he is not sitting in prison. He is just sort of a drifter. And he's made to look super dirty and surly, but you can also tell that he's super handsome. It's very much the prince waiting to be revealed. And indeed, at the end of the story, he's all cleaned up. The beast has turned into the prince and he's wearing a spiffy suit. He's gotten a haircut and he has his own palace of a home uh, that he's standing behind. They're very much, I think, trying to clear up the Michael Raphael problem that the book has. I can't say I blame them, but it felt a little ham-fisted. So moving on to the second adaptation, which is, of course, the ITV, Agatha Christie's Marple adaptation of this book. This was the fourth and final episode of season slash series three, which makes it the very last of the Geraldine McEwen Miss Marples. It aired on the 1st of January, 2009. This too appeared before A Caribbean Mystery, which wasn't adapted till season slash series six. And that, of course, was with Julia McKenzie starring as Miss Marple. Very odd that in both cases, they didn't manage to do this in the proper order. Unfortunately, and I don't want to spend too much time griping about this series because I've said all of this before, and I do like to give this series credit when I can. But unfortunately, I think this episode has a lot of the negative excesses that are typical of the series, and in particular, the Geraldine McEwen episodes within this series. It's pretty bonkers. And yet it has a bunch of impressive star power. <laughs> Those two things tend to be true in this series. Nicholas Winding Refn actually directed it, which I was surprised by when I saw his name pop up. Uh, Ruth Wilson is in it. She's playing Georgina Barrow, who is the Mrs. Sanborn from the novel. And then I'm saving the best for last. But Dan Stevens, he of the icy blue eyes, is Michael Raphael, actually, and a German Michael Raphael at that. I actually had to look up while I was watching this whether Dan Stevens is in fact German because I happen to have just watched this German language movie that he's in where he plays a robot. <laughs> it's, it's sort of a romantic comedy in which he's a robot. I'm not making that up. How could I make that up? And uh, no, he is just super smart and fluent in German. He's actually also fluent in French. So, uh, you know, icy blue eyes, language abilities, oof, be still our collective hearts. This Michael Raphael is even a step further than the BBC's Michael Raphael in terms of likability. He too was not involved in any sort of sexual assault in his past. Uh, he very much redeems himself by the end of the film. So just, yeah, the decisions made in terms of changes to the story struck me as unhinged. <laughs> Her, my friend Mark Aldrich, 
This specific episode, quote, has the unfortunate distinction of being the lowest rated episode of the whole run with fewer than 4.5 million viewers tuning in. It is once more a very loose adaptation with considerable changes to characters and motivation. And yet another example of this era of adaptations, bizarre fixation with villainous religious figures. This change is a further indication of the series as pastiche of a vague memory of Christie's mysteries that actually encompasses thrillers of the 1930s and 1940s, such as The Lady Vanishes, rather than anything in Christie's own work. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I would also argue that what they were trying to do with this adaptation was to recreate and then there were none. They essentially tried to make this story live up to its promise as a closed circle mystery set on a coach tour in which everyone who is a passenger on this coach tour has been summoned there by a shadowy figure. That figure is Jason Raphael for various reasons. And I suppose it would be fun Except it's not, because it's not done particularly well, and it's not this novel. It feels like a pastiche of, and then there were none with a bunch of other references mixed in, as Mark said. But I do think that, and then there were none, is a big influence here, which is why Miss Marple gets her instructions from Jason Raphael via gramophone. And we get another scene involving a gramophone recording later on as well. It's just a poor imitation of better Christie's. I think in general, the Geraldine McEwen adaptations had just run their course by this point. It's fortunate that the series was reinfused by Julia McKenzie stepping in immediately after this. I think it got better actually after that. And I don't think every Geraldine McEwen episode was bad, but I just think that by this point at the end of three seasons worth, it was feeling tired and the creative people behind it were just getting bigger, I think, in the attempt to keep people's waning attention. And the result was unfortunate. Mark actually gives us a little bit of goss as to uh, Geraldine McEwen herself. This is what he said. McEwen had garnered a reputation among some of those on the production as being difficult to work with. And it may be that her decision to leave was to the satisfaction of all. Hmm. Do tell, Mark. I wish we got a little bit more on that. But, you know, I'm not here to criticize Geraldine McEwen. I actually think that she brings something interesting and good to the character in some of those episodes, but not in this episode. However, the truest thing about this adaptation might be the loathsomeness of Raymond West, because in this adaptation too, Miss Marple is accompanied by a nephew, but at least it's a canon nephew. (laughs) So Raymond West is there and he's slimy and awful. So I just think it's really funny that the BBC adaptation actually went further in terms of fabricating than the ITV adaptation did. And just a final word, Mark mentioned the series Bizarre Fixation on villainous religious figures. Since we stay on the tour the whole time, we can't have Miss Marple going to the old manor house. So there is no old manor house. What we do have are two sisters who are on the tour. And those sisters are, well, a different kind of literal sisters. They are nuns. They are Sister Agnes and Sister Clotilde. You can guess which one of them ends up being the murderer. At the end, Sister Clotilde stabs herself in the heart, just like St. Elspeth, the patron saint of their church. I'm rolling my eyes a little bit. It just all feels a little silly and potentially even anti-organized religion for no good reason. You know, if there's something to say on that score, I'm all for it, but it's all just a bit of a jumbled mess. I do just want to note before we get to the rankings that there is a Korean language adaptation of this novel that aired in 2018 and it was called Ms. Ma Nemesis in which Ms. Ma 
is played by Yoonjin Kim. I know her as Sun from the TV series Lost, but she has certainly been in a lot more than that, especially in terms of Korean language productions. Uh, this is actually a Miss Marple series with a whole bunch of Miss Marple novels adapted after the titular Nemesis adaptation. And from what I could tell from summaries online, I have not watched this yet, though I absolutely will be watching it for a future Patreon episode. So stay tuned on that front. I think what they do here is that they mash up Miss Marple and Michael Raphael with maybe a little bit of Jessica Fletcher thrown in. Apparently, Ms. Ma is a mystery writer sent to jail after being accused of killing her daughter. And then she escapes from jail so that she can find the real murderer. And from there, she starts solving other cases. I'm intrigued. A lot of people have very good things to say about this series. I think they're doing interesting and innovative things with Christy, which is very much what we need to do these days since we have already done traditional adaptations. And I'm really interested in looking at what other cultures do with Christie. So I will definitely be covering that for a Patreon episode in the near future. Stay tuned. All right. It is finally rankings time, which means it is time to bring in the one, the only Jamie Berntal. Let's get into it. I am so excited to be here with Christy scholar Jamie Berntal, who is no stranger to the podcast. We had him on many, many moons ago to discuss his brilliant book, Queering Agatha Christie, which analyzes Christie's work through the lens of queer theory. It is really a must read for any hardcore fan of Christie. It is just chock full of insights. I have gone back to it time and time again. Uh, over the course of the podcast. I cannot recommend it enough. Um, he is actually coming out with not one, but two uh, books this year. It's practically Christie-esque of him. The first is uh, the Bloomsbury Handbook to Agatha Christie, which he edited along with Mary Anna Evans. And that features a whole bunch of critical pieces on Christie uh, from many folks that we've discussed on the podcast and a few we haven't as of yet. And I really can't wait to check that one out. He is also coming out with a solo endeavor. This is a book he wrote himself called Agatha Christie, A Companion to the Mystery Fictions. And that is basically an encyclopedia of every single thing Agatha Christie wrote. And it's meant for those who want to find out more about her. And I have to imagine it's going to be another treasure for hardcore fans. I cannot wait to read both of those books. Jamie, you've been such a friend for a long time to both Catherine and me. I'm so thankful that you agreed to come on to discuss Nemesis and to take on the Herculean or Herculean task, if you will, of uh, ranking it with me. So welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a huge honor to be doing this. Well, let's just get right into it. I would just like to quote a couple of critical responses to Nemesis to um, uh, get our feet wet, as it were. First up, we have Christie biographer Laura Thompson, who I love quoting uh, because she's just so eloquent <laughs> about Christie so often. She calls Nemesis Christie's last masterpiece. I'm not sure that I would go that far. I still think Endless Night is her last masterpiece, but I do agree with the sentiment. And she writes, Nemesis is a beautiful book despite its ramblings and repetitions. Not really a detective story, but a somber meditation on the realities of love. And then she quotes from the book, one of the most frightening words there is. So that's on one end of the spectrum. And then we have Robert Barnard, who is much less kind. I do enjoy his blurbs on all of Christie's books because they're often quite amusing. Uh, this is what he has to say about Nemesis. 
Miss Marple is sent on a tour of stately gardens by Mr. Raphael of a Caribbean mystery. The garden paths we are led up are neither enticing nor profitable. All the usual strictures about late Christie apply. Oof. <laughs> That's... Ouch. Yeah, ouch. He's right. That's a little bit of a pan. And then John Curran, I'm happy to report, has pretty much the same take as Laura Thompson, though with a bit less adulation. And this is what he has to say. In one way, Nemesis is the most surprising novel that Christie wrote in her declining years. As with most of the novels from her last decade, Nemesis is rambling and repetitive, and it is disappointing as a detective novel. The coach tour, which promises much as a traditional Christie setting, is almost a red herring. And unlike the classic settings of Murder on the Orient Express, Death in the Clouds, and Death on the Nile, where a mode of transport isolates a group of suspects, the vital characters in Nemesis, the three sisters, are all to be found outside the coach. Yet, though it is not a great detective novel, clues to its solution are remarkable only by their absence. Considered solely as a novel, it is a revelation. Its theme is love, one of the most frightening words there is in the world. This hitherto unexplored theme has powerful emotional impact, especially in the closing explanation, which, unusually for Miss Marple, takes over 15 pages. I pretty much agree with him, as I so often do. But given that we're going to start talking about uh, the plotting of this book, plot mechanics and plot credibility, I wonder if you agree that perhaps the plotting is not this book's strong suit as a puzzle mystery or a detective novel or where you fall on this spectrum, Jamie. Mm. I I mean, I don't agree with Robert Barnett, obviously. (laughs) I do really enjoy dipping into his reviews, partly because I disagree with him so much, but he's so delightfully acerbic. Yeah. Um, the other two reviews, I, I would agree to an extent. I would not say the key theme was love. I'd say it was loneliness and the difficulty to find love falls underneath that category. But as a plot, I don't think it's a masterpiece. Let's not pretend that, but it is a lot more publishable than some of the stuff that comes out in the 1970s. It's a good novel. It's not a mad mystery in the conventional sense. But behind that, there really is a plot. And I have a theory about that, which I'll discuss later. But there are all the ingredients for really good traditional Christie plot and lots of throwbacks to the previous books, which lead you to expect certain things to happen, which obviously don't whether through accident or design. But there is a really strong, creative, great idea there. And you are thrown into that world a bit. You are wondering what's going to happen. You are enjoying... Well, I found it really enjoyable to read. What did you think? I actually very much agree with you. I mean, I think that the plotting is certainly not as good as Christy, you know, at her height, but it's not yeah. bad. And I, and I actually disagree with Curran that there are not that he's saying there are no clues, but he's saying that there is a dearth of clues. That's true. But there are a few clues. They're weak and they're pretty mundane for Christie. But the story tracks and there is a puzzle to solve and the puzzle gets solved at the end. And even though it's not one of these puzzle mysteries from the 30s or 40s that is just crackling with outlandish and and fiendishly ingenious clues, we do have a decent echo, (laughs) I think, of that. And I agree with you that we don't often get that in the books from the late 60s and into the early 70s. And I kind of think this is the last one, given that, of course, the last two books to be published were written decades earlier. I think this is kind of like the final hurrah. And I've always had a lot of affection for it. And I was very excited 
coming into rereading this book because I always remembered Nemesis as kind of one of my favorites. And I'm happy to say mm. that I wasn't disappointed by my reread. I was actually given that I've been closely reading now Chrissy's later books and having just come off of Passenger to Frankfurt, which is a bit bewildering uh, in a bad way. I was very pleasantly surprised by how coherent and well-crafted the book is even on a plot level. So yeah, I think it actually acquits itself pretty well, even as to plot mechanics. Yeah, uh, I'd agree. Um, some of the dissembling, some of the putting it together and the telling it gets repetitive mm -hmm. in a way that personally I enjoy, but we'll probably come to that later. Um, yes. It's lots of going over the same territory again and again, and the pacing isn't necessarily as tight or as clippy as it was in Christie's heyday, but you can tell that she sat in her notebook and wrote out the A, B, C, D, this happens next thing, and she's sticking to it. You are confident all the way through that you're being guided on this mystery tour through this novel. You're getting a plot. You're getting something. And there's a healthy body count. Three bodies, I think. Three murders. Absolutely. We have three murders, which is kind of, you know, the gold standard, right? Um, Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And I think if this book had been written 20 or even 10 years earlier, I actually think it could have been one of the crown jewels because I think mm. other, other than plotting, it has so much going for it, which we'll get to when we're talking about characters and setting and tone. If she had shaved off about 50 pages, <laughs> you know, 50 pages of meandering dialogue, meandering and repetitive narration, which I think she just wouldn't have done if this book were written in the 40s or 50s, I think it would be a lot stronger, but it still totally works. I mean, it's, it, it is another journey into the past, right? Where our detective, in this case, Miss Marple, is tasked with trying to figure out what happened years earlier. And interestingly, the same can be said of literally five of the six novels that she wrote between Endless Night and then her final two books, which again, kind of don't count because they were written decades earlier. The only one among those six books that is not a journey into the past is Passenger to Frankfurt. And honestly, that might be all that that book has to recommend. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in a way, she is doing more of the same of what she did in her late career. But I think that it's probably the most successful version of it. And I would say that that point also goes to recycling because at this point, Christy almost has to recycle. I mean, she's kind of written everything that could be written as to mysteries and like where all, you know, contemporary authors are just continuing that recycling effort in her wake. <laughs> I think sometimes you could argue. And this one, I'm actually quoting from John Kern again. This one has distinct echoes of a similar plot device in Halloween Party. Fast forward if you haven't read Halloween Party, where a sunken garden fills a similar role to the greenhouse in this novel. And also Dead Man's Folly, which features a folly as a grave. That's not really a spoiler. And we also have echoes, actually, of the body in the library. Fast forward if you haven't read that one. In that one as well, we had one corpse switched out for another. And we also had a car that was being used for purposes of affecting that little switcheroo. But I think that the recycling is good recycling here because you only realize that she's using some of the same sort of obfuscational and mystery tropes when you sit back and think about it, which is pleasing. It's not, it's not one of those cases where I'm like, oh boy, this is such an obvious retread. I think she's drawing on what she's done before in a productive way. Yeah, uh, I'd agree. And I think there's one more element of recycling uh, going on here, which is a really fascinating one. And I don't want to do any spoilers for books you haven't discussed on the podcast yet. So 
maybe if you haven't read Sleeping Murder, fast forward a little bit. But there are elements of, in fact, I'd actually argue it's the same book written twice. Nemesis and Sleeping Murder have at their heart the same sort of victim and the effort of Miss Marple to discover this young woman who she has never been able to know, who has only been described in often sexualized terms by people around her. And Miss Marple is trying to find out the truth of that young woman and finding out about the obsessive love that has killed her. And there's something very fascinating about choosing that as Miss Marple's swan song. Now, we know Christie wrote Sleeping Murder, depending who you talk to, either in the 40s or the 50s, for publication after her death. It was always meant to be the last Miss Marple novel. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Nemesis is very self-consciously the last Miss Marple novel, the way that she has her own conclusion, the way we follow Miss Marple inner thoughts in a way we haven't before all the way through and we see her get her final happy ending where she's almost retiring on her winnings in this case and of course right at the end one of the things and one of the reasons I'd so have loved for Catherine to be here would be to talk about Dark Marple with her Mm -hmm. because one of the things that Miss Marple always does at the end of these books is sets up a sacrifice to catch the murderer. And she uses an innocent person as bait to get the murderer into a position where they're outing themselves, if you like. And Mm -hmm. in this book, as in Sleeping Murder, and I think they're the only two, she uses herself as the bait Mm -hmm. to catch and lure the murderer And I think that's fascinating. And it's just this progression of the Marple character. And so this is a really lovely and carefully thought out book. I think Christie had been thinking of this idea for a while, which is one of the reasons the plot is so unusually strong for very late Christie, because she needed to write it and give Miss Marple her own conclusion, mercifully, not a violent conclusion. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think there's something so moving actually about the final sequence in which Miss Marple makes herself the bait and she essentially stands up to the killer and puts herself in real peril and shows such courage. It's fascinating. I had not thought of that mainly because we, as you point out, we haven't yet covered Sleeping Murder, but um, the echoes between those two books are really interesting. And given that she knew that sleeping murder would appear at some point, the idea that they're almost communicating with each other in that way, those two books, because I 100% agree with you. And when we get to series long characters, that, that is a superlative category, I think, for this book. I think this is might be the best Miss Marple book, or it's certainly one of the best. It is, it is just a fabulous Miss Marple novel. And I think that it 100% does feel like the final Miss Marple, because it is the last one she wrote. And we have that that lovely, lovely scene at the end, which I will be reading out. Have no fear. But uh, yeah, no, I, I agree, though, I think as, as to the echoes with Sleeping Murder, which is really interesting. So I, I think all in all, plot wise and plot mechanics wise, specifically, this book really does do well. And just a few other specifics I wanted to point to. I think that there really is a bit of clever obfuscation when Miss Marple assumes, as we all as readers presumably do, maybe we don't, but pretty sure I did when I read it the first time, that if someone is jealous of Verity's love for Michael Raphael, then it has to be a male. And that 
the means of killing Miss Temple are also pointed to as probably done by a man. Even Miss Marple herself says that accuracy is more a male quality than a female one, which is interesting. But of course, in the end, it's not a man who did it. It's a woman who did it. And I think that that obfuscation is very, very cleverly handled, like a classic Christie. I do have one quibble, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this, because I could be misreading it. I could be misremembering. But why does Elizabeth Temple go on this coach tour now to go? We know that she's going to see Archdeacon Brabazon and that she is just unsettled about Verity Hunt. But Verity Hunt died years ago. Right. And it seems to me to be a coincidence that she ends up on the coach tour with Miss Marple in the Joan Hickson adaptation. It's implied that there's a brochure that landed on her doorstep, which Jason Raphael planted there to entice her to come along. And I feel like that's their way of fixing this. But I I fear that this is one of those unbelievable coincidences that we just sometimes find in Christie that she didn't worry all that much about because coincidences, of course, do happen in real life, but it irks me, or maybe I'm just misreading. I agree. That struck me too. Um, There's quite a few moments where I've been thinking, why? What are the chances that this happened and this happened? Not least of which, how did Mr. Raphael know exactly when he was going to die? Um, (laughs) Because he had to make quite a lot of arrangements for a very specific time, which did sort of depend on all these people, who most of whom are quite a bit older than him, comfortably outliving him and him dying at a very certain time. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that one. There were a few loose ends as well, things that didn't particularly get picked up, like um, Emlyn Price being colourblind. I wasn't entirely sure where that was going in the end, beyond um, slight confusion over the colour of the jumper he saw. And a few things like that, it's not as sophisticated as with Christy in her heyday. When she was at her height, her red herrings were also her clues. So you'd remember them, but you'd just be seeing them in the wrong way. And then she'd show you the right way to look at them. And in this, we're getting a lot of things sort of thrown at us, which don't go anywhere necessarily. Jamie, I I literally included the Emlyn Price color blindness thing Uh, (laughs) when we get to setting and tone because I'm going to, you know, I want to talk a little bit about, Mm. again, the repetitive and kind of meandering nature of this book. And I was like, why is there this passage about (laughs) Emlyn Price being colorblind? It doesn't, I put in my margins, is this a clue? Like, is this going somewhere? Is at least a red herring? It's a nothing. (laughs) It's just, it's just there. And you're like, okay, he's colorblind. That's it. (laughs) I, I, I love it. It's like hearing a story from uh, a very much loved relative and sometimes it rambles a bit and goes in other directions but there's it's it's driving forward it's charming i I agree with you and i think that's the spirit with which we need to read later career christy right it's that (laughs) you know she's on her dictaphone let's just imagine her at winterbrook she's she's sort of sitting in her study just rambling on (laughs) and and you know what i will listen to every single word that that woman wrote or thought every single word that i possibly can so they're all to be treasured even emlyn price's colorblindness i I agree with you it was just it's just funny that we both uh picked up on that well before we rank plot mechanics we might as well also talk about plot credibility because i just as as always i think it is just helpful to think about them hand in hand and i think on a fundamental level 
the motivation for murder in this book, which you could say is thwarted love. I actually, I I'm really, really digging you calling it loneliness, Jamie, actually, because that's almost like a fifth L it's like a fifth L in PD James's four L's, right? Love, mm-hmm. loathing, lust, lucre, and now loneliness. I mean, I think that's, that's quite uh, a poignant way of putting what's happening here. And we'll talk more about that too, because I think there's, um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of super textual commentary as to what exactly the nature of that love is in Nemesis. And I I really want to get your opinion on it because I think a lot of readers will finish this book and think, is this a lesbian love? Is this Mm -hmm. something else that's going on? So I I do want to touch on that. Perhaps not right now, though, for plot credibility. (laughs) Whatever that love is, I think it's extremely exquisitely rendered and believable. It also puts the book in extremely good company because that sort of thwarted love, whatever it is, I think uh, is very much the underlying motive in both Five Little Pigs and The Hollow. And I think it's just as well rendered here. And that's what I mean by the fact that Nemesis really, if the if it had just been a little tighter, I think it could have been a crown jewel, just like those two books, which are in our top 10. So as a background motivation, I think it's extremely convincing. I find that extremely credible. The one issue. <laughs> the one big issue, I think, when it comes to plot credibility, there, there are kind of two, but there's one major and one minor, has to do with the means of Elizabeth Temple's murder. John Curran calls it, at best, imprecise. <laughs> um, and I have to agree, I don't want to spoil Death on the Nile for anyone that hasn't read it. You better read it soon because the, the big feature film extravaganza is upon us. Uh, so if you want to watch it, you should certainly read it beforehand. But when Elizabeth Temple is hit by that rolling rock, it definitely made me think of the attempted murder of Lynette Ridgway at the beginning of Death on the Nile. And Curran thought of this as well. This is what he wrote. 35 years earlier on the banks of the Nile, Andrew Pennington discovered this when his murder attempt on Lynette Doyle failed literally to achieve its target. And for a middle-aged murderess, you know, he finds this rolling rock business to be unlikely and impractical. I think that's true. I think this is perhaps one of the goofier Christie murders. It doesn't really seem like something that would happen in real life. However, there is the notion that the stone that Clotilde pushed was actually a quote, rocking stone. That is a phrase that Christie uses in the course of this book. And I had to look it up because I didn't know what a rocking stone was. And it's one of those large stones that's balanced on another stone and which can be dislodged by applying actually just a small amount of force. So that's, you know, helps, I think, a little bit. And then Christie herself also points out the improbability of this murder. Professor Wanstead within the book, he says, if it was done deliberately, it might not, of course, have succeeded. It might have missed her, but it did succeed. So you could almost say that the murder actually being pulled off is another coincidence (laughs) in in this book that we just kind of have to buy. And then, of course, the cherry on top of this Sunday of improbability is that, of course, Miss Temple lingers just long enough to murmur cryptic (laughs) things to Miss Marple before kicking it. So we've seen Agatha Christie do this before. It was usually in thrillers in the 1920s and, you know, maybe in the in the 30s, but it's a little hard to swallow. Yeah, yeah. Um, the rock falling obviously made me think of Death on the Nile too, because we're all in Death on the Nile mode at the moment. I think <laughs> anyone with an interest in Christie is being talked to and asked about this new film all the time. So, right. yeah, I thought uh, of that and about how in that book it's sort of used 
to show a spur of the moment thing that wasn't really meant to work and all that you know a half-hearted attempt to kill and then suddenly in here it's a very serious thing that works somehow and on top of that of course how did anyone know that Elizabeth Temple would be walking along that path at that point it's so bizarre both the adaptations I think I've only seen the two English language ones I haven't seen the Korean one but both of those change that particular method into something that makes a little more sense even the um, diabolical ITV adaptation. And it is a testament of my love for this podcast and for Agatha Christie that I made myself watch that thing for the second and last time in my life. <laughs> oh, Jamie, I almost didn't make make it all the way through. I believe it's that character is thrown off of a cliff rather than a rolling rock falling on her. And then in the BBC adaptation, I think it's a bust of Shakespeare. That yes. falls on Miss Temple, right? Yes, yes. I remember well being a child and watching it with my little cup of tea and cucumber sandwiches and recognizing Shakespeare. Yes. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I think that is a that is a demerit. And then a minor one, which occurred to me after I was sitting around and probably thinking way too much about this book, is that for the most part, I think Christie really does tether her mysteries to the time in which she sets them, which is contrary to popular mm-hmm. belief. But if you read the books closely, she absolutely 100% does that. However... This is the part of recycling that she did from the body in the library. Fast forward, if you haven't read that one, where there's one corpse substituted for another. I think it's a little harder to believe in 1971 that Nora Broad's body can be substituted successfully for Verity Hunt's. You know, I suppose Clotilde is Verity's guardian. She's the one who misidentifies the body. I guess we can believe that there's no follow-up from there, no dental records or anything else. But I just think that that substitution is a little bit easier to buy in The Body in the Library, which is written nearly 30 years earlier, than it is here. I would just point that out. It's not believable in The Body in the Library at all. (laughs) (laughs) P.D. James uh, has an essay on Agatha Christie where she talks about that and talks about where forensic science was at in the 1940s and says they absolutely would have at least known the difference between bleach blonde hair and naturally blonde hair. And and, and by the way, shout, I'm sorry to interrupt you, just shout out to Catherine Brobeck because one of her finest insights when we covered The Body in the Library as a person who had bleached her hair many a time was <laughs> if you're bleaching a corpse's hair and you did that like an hour before uh that library is going to smell basically like the inside of a bleach bottle <laughs> so yeah <laughs> five stars uh, yeah this uh it's completely not believable especially if the body was initially identified as Nora Broad which I believe it was in the book uh, or they initially thought it was Nora Broad. So mm-hmm. there are two young women missing. Of course, they're going to run tests. They're not going to identify her from jewelry or markings. Or Yeah, I think it's both her clothes and some markings. I think Clotilde just lies and says, oh, yes, yes, yes. Those oh, yeah. birthmarks on her body are Verity's birthmarks, et cetera, et cetera. Of course. And they're not going to take her word for that. But I mean, really, by the time we get to that revelation, there have already been so many, we can say coincidences or just implausibilities at this point that I think we're thoroughly entering into the spirit of things that are just going along with it by now. 
I agree with you. And I think given that the underpinning, again, the, the sort of ultimate motivation for the murder is so sound and, you mm. know, so based in characters that she creates so skillfully as she does in the best of her books that I think there's, there's a little bit of deducting that we need to do for plot credibility because of those issues, but not a huge amount. Well, that's I would, it. That's an emotional story. As an emotional yeah. story, it's incredibly credible. It's one of her most credible stories. As a crime story, it's not credible at all as a logical story. (laughs) Even down to Jason Raphael calling in Miss Marple in the first place. Uh, Christy makes very valiant attempts to explain why he does this and doesn't go to a professional or to anyone else. But really, it doesn't necessarily make a huge deal of sense, A, that he would choose this person he met once and B, that he would give her absolutely no information and turn it into a sort of game doesn't really make any sense except to engage the reader. That's actually a really good point. That that should also, I think, go to plot credibility. The gaminess of this, which, and this is the problem we always run into with this category, because to a certain extent, you just have to go along with the improbabilities because they're part of the fun. And that's, you know, part of why we read Christie's and, and mysteries in general. But I think at her best books, she manages to have her cake and eat it too. It's fun. But then when we sit back and we think about it, it's entirely believable. And I'll always use, and then there were none, I think as the best example of that, Mm. but yeah, why would he make this into a game? Why would he be so coy and withholding? I actually completely believe that he's just a smart man. And even though he had one glancing experience with Ms. Marple, he just realized the sheer brilliance of this super woman of a person who is just one of the smartest people ever created. And he, he appreciated that, but, um, yes, why would he withhold information? It makes no sense whatsoever. So I'll tell you where I would fall on plot mechanics and and plot credibility, just to give you a little bit of a framework and then see where you may fall as well. Jamie, I would probably give plot mechanics Something like a six, I think it should definitely be above a five because, again, I think it's quite good, but it's not great. And then I think plot credibility should be a little bit lower. So I'd probably give it something like a three or a four, probably a four, which would be a 10 out of 20 overall, which is not high, but also much higher than we've been going for a plot overall in these later Christie's. Now, that's really interesting because I also gave it a six for plot mechanics. For credibility, I gave it a three. I can't get over some of these massive coincidences. <laughs> All right. You know what? I will go with your three. I was going to do a three or four. That's fascinating that we we ended up on the same numbers. So fantastic. Six for plot mechanics, three for plot credibility. I think that's really fair. We're being stern but fair, you know, in the spirit of Miss Marble herself, which is my seamless segue into our next category, uh, very happy category. And this is series long characters. Even though we might have a slight believability issue, as you already alluded to, when Jason Raphael hires Miss Marple for this case, I have to say that I found it extraordinarily satisfying that Miss Marple finally gets a case on which she is hired 
to do a job. Mm-hmm. And even though it's a highly irregular sort of hiring, I just love that she's not elbowing her way into a mystery as a busybody. I love that Jason Raphael wants her to solve a mystery. You know, she's also self-aware enough to know that she actually will be more effective at solving this particular mystery than a garden variety private detective. She refers to herself several times in this book as, quote, an old pussy, which is an perhaps unfortunate phrase for a contemporary audience that does come up a lot in, in Christie in the Miss Marples. But Miss Marple and presumably Christie herself even has full awareness in this very book of how old fashioned that term is. But she knows that that's how people think of her because Miss Marple, unlike Poirot, really does not have any illusions about herself. And I think that that actually is a crucial difference between the two of them. And it might be the key to why I love Miss Marple more than I do Poirot, in fact, because I don't feel as much of the distance that you sometimes do between Christy, the author, and Poirot, her detective, uh, when it comes to Marple. It feels like the bond there is is truly close and strong. And just on that issue of Miss Marple being hired, it just thrilled me when Professor Wanstead at one point called her Detective Inspector Marple. Oh, if only. What a phrase. And then at the end, in this really, really expansive, as John Curran noted, 15-page denouement or explanation of what is going on here. Miss Marple is speaking to an assembled crew, and this is quite the crew. It's not just Professor Wanstead. It is not just an official from the public prosecutor's office. It is not just Sir James Lloyd, the assistant commissioner of Scotland Yard. It is not just Sir Andrew McNeil, the governor of Manstone Prison. It is also the home secretary himself of the United Kingdom. That's right. Those are the people who are listening as Miss Marple is explaining what happened in this story. This is a far cry, actually, from a drawing room denouement. And I think, you know what? For the final sort of climactic Miss Marple, absolutely. She really has arrived. And then we also, I think, get some great dark Marple fodder in the aftermath of that resolution. And I was thinking of Catherine as well. Um, When all these quote unquote important men who she's just schooled totally talk behind her back about her, they say, that old lady gives me the creeps. That's what the governor of Manstone Prison says. The assistant commissioner of Scotland Yard says, so gentle and so ruthless. And then the home secretary's pronouncement is the best yet. The most frightening woman I ever met. (laughs) Just lots of Miss Marple fodder in this book. It's just a fabulous, fabulous Miss Marvel novel. Yes, absolutely. And it's so, so nice to be having this conversation with Miss Marple, a long sustained look inside Miss Marple's mind, which we've never really had to any great extent in Christie before. This is her book. This is Miss Marple's time. This is her story. And what I love, really, really, really love about this in a way we don't have with Poirot or really with any detective I know, is she is entirely respected as a person and as a detective, but not at all deified. She is not presented as a superhuman person, but as a flawed person, a limited person, someone who doesn't understand everything that's going on around her, which nobody in the world does. Not even Hercule Poirot understands <laughs> everything going on around him, much as he would deny it. And this is the first time, really, of seeing inside her head. And I honestly don't think Christie could have written so extensively inside Miss Marple's mind before, because she wasn't old enough. Miss Marple has always been significantly older than her creator, but now I think they're 
kind of of a level of an age. And certainly when Marple talks about books from her childhood, these are the books from Christie's childhood. Mm-hmm. And, and we're starting to see more of Christie's views that she might not express normally in a, in a narrative, but we're seeing them in Miss Marple's dialogue, um, often her dialogue to herself because she talks so much to herself. I noticed that both the TV adaptations gave her a, a helpful nephew to sound ideas off and sound mm-hmm. these thoughts off, uh, which I can understand for dramatic purposes, but it sort of misses that fact that she's there alone and learning to embrace her own company and live her own life from her own perspective. I I really love that she is so central to this. This is her case, her story. It's such a lovely send-off for Miss Marple. Uh, I mean, 10 out of 10 for the Marple characterization, for sure. I completely agree with you. Spoiler, that's what we're going to be ranking this, but I'm I, I'm not done yet with all of the praise I want to heap on the Miss Marple of it all in this book. I, I agree with everything you said. And I think that's such a good point because in so many of the earlier Marple novels, I think a perennial complaint of Christie readers and Marple lovers is that we often don't get enough Marple, right? Mm-hmm. In in some of the, the body in the library, I believe there were either five or six detectives <laughs> in, the, in that novel, including Miss Marple. And she's just not on page a lot. Um, the moving finger also, she can't really get arrive on the scene until later because she probably would have figured it out much more quickly if she had. So we just don't get that much Marple in that book. And here she is just front and center from the beginning. And yes, that sense of interiority is, I think, key to the the power of the book. And I agree with you. That is that is one of the few things I won't fault either the BBC or the ITV adaptations for inserting the nephew characters. I mean, in this book, Professor Wanstead actually is a little bit of a confidant and a companion, but I I agree with you that a lot of her finer musings are just internal and we're privy to them and we can feel that Agatha Christie just identifies so closely with her detective at this point because they're the same age and they're having the same experience. And that's also been my personal revelation in reading, rereading these books as closely as I have for this podcast project. I would have always said before doing this that she has one detective pair who age, the Beresfords, and then Poirot is ageless and Miss Marple is ageless. But that's not Mm. true. It's much weirder than that. Miss Marple starts out old being created by a rather young, you know, a young to middle-aged author, and she's made to be very old. Then she Peter Pans, and she becomes sort of late middle-aged herself. And then she gradually gets older in a very real, at times heartbreaking way, as Christy herself gets older. And this is really the culmination of that, because we have a lot of instances in which she does feel truly old. You know, when she reads Jason Raphael's name, in the death notices at the beginning of the book, she doesn't remember who he is at first. Mm. The reader does, presumably, but she knows, oh, it'll come to me eventually. (laughs) But, and I have to say, living through the last, you know, two years of the pandemic, people talk about COVID brain when we, our memories have become faulty. It was like, I can identify with that. I know what she's going through there. But I also, I just found this detail to be so just heartbreaking as a lover of Miss Marple. Uh, Christy writes that she arranges her chair at home, quote, at such an angle as not to be easy to look out in the garden unless she definitely and clearly wished to see something in particular. And that's because it pains her to look at her garden because she cannot do her own gardening anymore. 
because she is too old. And she referenced that before, I believe, in the mirror crack from side to side. But we see that she's still, even though she's rid herself of the officious Miss Knight, whose name she misremembers as Miss Bishop, and she now has Cherry, right, as her helpmeet, she's still in reduced circumstances as to her physicality. And she's quite frail, which is why that final sequence in which she puts herself in harm's way and Clotilde almost sneers at her. I mean, she calls her a miserable, shriveled up old woman, right? It's so affecting. The other detail I just wanted to point out, which I love so much, is that after Miss Temple dies, this is what Christy writes about what Miss Marple does. She laid aside the baby's pink coat, which she had previously been engaged in knitting and had substituted a crocheted purple scarf. This half-morning touch went with Miss Marple's early Victorian ideas of tactfulness in face of tragedy. I just love that. Oh, yes. And Miss Marple is so Victorian here. Agatha Christie did not like being compared to Miss Marple. Even at this point, she um, actually once wrote a particularly acerbic letter to a woman's magazine. I don't think it was ever sent. Someone probably tactfully didn't send it. But um, it was disputing this article in which they said that she was very much like her detective, Miss Marple, a a nice sweet old lady with um, hidden depths and a nose for evil. And she was very, very cross with this. And because Miss Marple ultimately is a wonderful character, but has a not very nice side. And Mm -hmm. she actually says in this letter, why don't people compare me to Ariadne Oliver? Which is a much more strategic self-portrait, if you like. (laughs) It's a much more obviously likable figure, the eccentric scatty crime novelist, I'm not going to threaten you kind of thing. But she's definitely using the character here to reflect on getting older. And um, we can see that in some of these bits, like where she misremembers Mr. Raphael's name. That is such a poignant moment as she goes through the, the newspaper and tries to remember names. But it's also a sign of an author winding down and padding because she doesn't need to list every single name in the obituaries. <laughs> and 30 years before, she wouldn't have. Even 10 years before she would have said her eye was caught by the word Raphael or something. But, you know, it it stretches out quite a lot. And so we've got on two levels there, the idea of ageing. What I really like is seeing not just Miss Marple, but some of the characters and friends she's made in recent years coming in. Because we're not necessarily getting Colonel Melchett and Dolly Bantry, although they're both referenced, but we're getting Cherry Baker and references to Miss Knight and references to Bertram's Hotel and obviously Mm -hmm. Jason Raphael and Esther Walters or Esther Anderson as she is now. And these are characters who came into Miss Marple's world in the 60s, like in her really late lease of life. And it's almost the way that she's changing with the times too. Her little circle is more modern than it was. And it's just really nice to see that continuity in what we often think of as standalone novels. It's like you're back in that world. It's really sweet. I totally agree with you. There's such great continuity in this book as to the Marple verse. And thank you for supplying Cherry's last name because when I (laughs) mentioned her just before, I refused to say her last name because all I could think of in my head is Cherry Jones, the theater and film actor. And I was like, I know that her name is not Cherry Jones because Cherry is not a first name you come across too often. But yes, thank you, Cherry Baker. Yeah, I love that we do get a glimpse of Esther Walters. She obviously appeared in the Caribbean Mystery. She was Jason Raphael's 
secretary. Miss Marple's interview with her is mainly fruitless, but it's pretty diverting. I think this probably could have been cut if we're looking to cut 50 pages out of Nemesis. But again, it's charming. I certainly was not mad while I was reading that interview. Um, You cannot cut it because (laughs) it has this wonderful moment where Esther Walters says very, or Esther Anderson as she is now, says very apologetically to Miss Marple that she's remarried. And she says, my husband is a little younger than I am. Mm-hmm. And Miss Marple responds, oh, very, very sensible to get a younger husband and um, explains why it's so important to get a younger husband. And of course, this is what Christie semi-scandalously did in 1930, got a much younger husband. I, of course, have this written down as well. She says that men age faster than women and have all sorts of <laughs> ailments and then says, I think we're a tougher sex. <laughs> um, I, of course, thought of Agatha and Max as well. We get a reference to Sir Henry Clothering, but of course, Miss Temple knew him. He often raved about Miss Marple. I did notice, by the way, one of those other names that she does go through in the death notices was Race. So I wonder if that was the death of one Colonel Race. I don't know. Just kind of floated in in there in the book. I'll choose not to believe so. That's too upsetting. (laughs) But yeah, I just want to close out this category by quoting almost the very, very end of the book. And this is the last glimpse that we get of Miss Marple, you know, in a novel that is called Nemesis, where Miss Marple is to a certain extent inhabiting the role of Nemesis, which we've seen her inhabit before. I'd say most remarkably in A Pocket Full of Rye. She's very much an avenging fury in that book. And we see her doing the same thing here. I mean, she puts the mass of pink wool around her head, which is the same thing she did in A Caribbean Mystery when she called herself Nemesis. And she certainly enacts her version of, of justice. But, and this is, I think, where we can really feel Christy giving her final send-off The last glimpse we get of Miss Marple is not that at all. And it's very moving. And this is what Christy writes, because she's basically just collected her 20,000 pound reward. This is what Christy writes as she's leaving the lawyer's offices, Mr. Broadrib and Mr. Schuster. She looked back from the door and she laughed. Just for one moment, Mr. Schuster, who was a man of more imagination than Mr. Broadrib, had a vague impression of a young and pretty girl shaking hands with the vicar at a garden party in the country. It was, as he realized a moment later, a recollection of his own youth. But Miss Marple had, for a minute, reminded him of that particular girl, young, happy, going to enjoy herself. Mr. Raphael would have liked me to have fun, said Miss Marple. She went out of the door. Marple out! And quite triumphantly. (laughs) Yes, what a send-off. What a send-off. Okay, so 10 out of 10, yes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 10 out of 10. Lovely, lovely. Okay. (laughs) So let's move on to book-specific characters, which I think is also a pretty happy category. I think, obviously... Not all of the characters in this book are created equal. Many of the Coach Troy characters are forgettable, even the more heavily featured ones like Mrs. Risley Porter, her niece Joanna, her main squeeze, the colorblind Emlyn Price. But as discussed, the Coach Tour is almost a red herring. So I forgive the sketchiness or the vagueness of a lot of the bus tour characters and and especially of Miss Cook and Miss Barrow, because we can't find out too much about them or that will spoil the surprise. And I think the heart of the story lies, of course, with Miss Marple, but also with these three sisters. And I really think that they're exquisitely drawn. I think they're each distinct. I can picture 
each of them and remember their names really easily, Lavinia, Anthea, and Clotilde, I could have definitely told you that Clotilde was the murderer in Nemesis before (laughs) rereading this. And it's been like 30 years since I've read maybe 25 years since I've read Nemesis. And and that's saying something. Can't say that about every Christie. Before I get your opinion, Jamie, I also just want to point out that I think what's so clever about what she does with, with these sisters is that she goes out of her way to liken them to the three weird sisters in Macbeth. And this actually brings up an interesting instance of Christy repeating herself in later books, because we're told about Miss Marple mentioning something to her nephew, Raymond West, when Mm -hmm. he took her to see a production of Macbeth. And what Miss Marple says is, if I were ever producing this splendid play, I would make the three witches quite different. I would have them three ordinary, normal old women, old Scottish women. They wouldn't dance or caper. They would look at each other rather slyly, and you would feel a sort of menace just behind the ordinariness of them. And in The Pale Horse... Mark Easterbrook's erudite friend, David Ardingly, says in the course of a discussion about Macbeth, I know how I'd produce the witches if I were doing a production. I'd make them very ordinary, just sly, quiet old women like the witches in a country village. So apparently that's how Christie would have produced the three weird sisters in (laughs) Macbeth. So there's just a lot of Macbeth references. There's also references to Chekhov's titular three sisters. I think that comes up at least twice. And the reason why I think this is clever is that she's obfuscating the true referent for the three sisters here, which is, of course, the three fates. Because Nemesis is a sister to the fates in, you know, ancient Greek mythology. And I'm just going to admit, I totally got this off of an IMDb trivia page (laughs) uh, as I was doing my researches for this episode. But in Greek mythology, the three fates names are Lachesis, Clotho, and Atropos. Sure, I'm completely mispronouncing that. Clotho spins the thread of life, Lachesis draws it out, and Atropos cuts it. And of course, Christie's names for these three sisters are their Anglophone analogs. We've got Lavinia for Lachesis, Clotilde for Clotho, and Anthea for Atropos. And in a way, that's also a red herring because the least scary fate is totally Clotho, whereas the most scary one is Atropos. And there's a bit of sort of red herring business as to, well, maybe Anthea is truly the crazy sister. And yet, of course, Clotilde ends up being the monster. So I just think it's all very clever. and And I love her depiction of these three sisters. That's wonderful. I, I, I did not realize that about the fates. That's, oh, that's fantastic. Thank oh, you, IMDb. She, <laughs> <laughs> oh, she knew what she was doing, didn't she? Um, right? And I love that she didn't telegraph that. She totally buried it. That's why I never picked yeah. up on it. Wow. Oh, goodness. I, I, I'm so amazed. Um, but she did love her three witches, three sisters thing, especially in the later books. And um, yeah, when Miss Marple says about producing uh, Macbeth and she says the witches would be ordinary women, I almost felt a lovely pang of familiarity because, of course, we know that line from The Pale Horse. And it's a little bit of Christie's Miss Marple, c'est moi kind of thing. It's really nice, but also with these flawlessly characterised sisters, really, who are such a point of their generation and so wonderfully complementary characters, she also manages to throw us off by having one who's kind of obviously not all there and one who's overtly sane and sensible and normal, who we therefore immediately suspect of being up to something. Mm -hmm. And then the one in the middle who's not a particularly likable character, but also not a particularly unstable character. And so we almost disregard Clotilde, although she is, of course, the one who had this strong, incredibly strong 
love for Verity and the one who was instrumental in identifying the body. And um, I would slightly disagree with John Curran in saying that there aren't any clues there. I, I think they are there. It's just we are led to look at them in the wrong way again. The characters on the coach trip, I'm going to slightly disagree with you, I'm afraid. I just mainly got a bit sad with these characters, partly because when Miss Marple arrives on the coach and surveys her fellow passengers, it reminded me so much of that rather jaunty moment in Death on the Nile where Poirot and Mrs Allerton are looking at the guest list and trying to guess who's who. It sort of reminded me of that, and it was so much more pared down and so sad. And then we get these typical Christie Stock characters, almost like in Death on the Nile. We have the um, austere older woman and her downtrodden niece. We have the American couple, the henpecked husband and the chattery woman kind of thing. It's very like these characters we know from Death on the Nile, Evil Under the Sun and everything, and yet they're not really going anywhere. Even when colorblind Emlyn Price is introduced pre-colorblindness, he, <laughs> she has Miss Marple say, well, at least there's some young people on the bus. And you just know that they were thrown in because there needed to be some young people in the story kind of thing. It felt a little bit like, okay, I need to throw some characters in. I just felt sad because I know that they could have been so much more. And there's all the recipe there of such a classic Christie but overall, hugely engaged. Those three sisters and also Elizabeth Temple is um, wonderfully characterised. And even Verity herself, the victim, is so undercharacterized that that's interesting because we only find out about her from what other people are saying. And that's a classic Christie thing with uh, especially female victims like Elena in Evil Under the Sun and their victim in Sleeping Murder we hear these things about them and it's only kind of at the end that Miss Marple feels, the detective feels they're able to give this dead woman something like a voice. And so that's interesting. And of course, inviting comparisons between her and Nora Broad, the apparently lesser victim who was more rough and ready and working class and everything. And people seem to care about less, but she is given this community of people whose lives are endlessly affected by her death, who haven't been able to process it because they've never found her body. So there's all these real and complex characteristics coming into this novel, and I think it's fascinating. There's so much going on here that, in a way, I almost resent having these jaunty, familiar, stereotyped characters in the coach because they don't go anywhere. I actually, to a certain extent, agree with you because I think you can explain away the vagueness by saying it's a little bit of a red herring, but I think that the fact that the coach tour turned out to be a red herring is also a little disappointing. And I think that if Christie were writing at the height of her powers, it wouldn't have been as much mm -hmm. of a red herring. I think she would have gotten a lot more mileage out of the coach tour as a closed circle sort of a situation. There's just some awkwardness in the fact that the three sisters are not on the coach tour, you know, and you can feel that in the blocking, almost the physical blocking of the book where Miss Marple is constantly shuttling 
back and forth between the old manor house and the golden boar, which is the the <laughs> hotel where they're staying. She makes three separate trips and it's just kind of bizarre and awkward. Perhaps, you know, we shouldn't use that as a justification for why these characters are vague. So I completely understand your disappointment on that score. I agree with you that I think Elizabeth Temple is also a good character. I just want to point out she's the last of Christie's competent and talented headmistress characters. Among her sistren, we have Miss Battersby in Third Girl, who ran Meadow Field School, Miss Emlyn in Halloween Party, who was headmistress of the Elms, and Miss Pope in The Girdle of Hippolyta, which is, of course, one of the short stories within the Laborers of Hercules collection. But of course, the most heavily featured headmistress is Miss Bolstrode in Cat Among the Pigeons, who's Meadowbank School sounds suspiciously like the inverse to Miss Temple's fallow field. And just as an aside, I don't know if you agree with me, Jamie, isn't fallow field an incredibly bad name for a school? Like a fallow field is one that lies dormant and isn't really used for much of anything. Maybe that's almost like a joke within the book that this school is called fallow fields. I don't know. Maybe the school I went to had very fallow fields that were never used or cared for. So, yes. <laughs> I think people talk about Christie's stock character types and she 100% has them, but I think she has more interesting categories of stock characters than people give her credit for. And this is one of them. I always enjoy this kind of a character. And I think you can feel that she has a lot of respect for teachers and they're always drawn as intelligent and interesting people. I, I liked that she was similar to Miss Bolstrode because I think she was one of my favorite characters in Christie. And the fact that she was similar was um, a plus. And also, don't think for a second I failed to make the connection to the saintly Miss Temple in Jane Eyre, who is another famous and famously good schoolmistress. I'm not sure if that was deliberate on Christie's part, but. As per usual, I will give her the benefit of the doubt there. I agree with everything you said about Verity Hunt, and, and she is so skilled, I think, at almost like unearthing a character who we never see on the page or, you know, face-to-face, -face, as it were. And I think Caroline Crail is another one in Five Little Pigs, which is just, it's just so interesting how she eventually exposes her or brings her to life to the reader. Um, the only other character I would also mention is Michael Raphael, who is... In one sense, I think yet another of these doomed ne'er-do-well Monty-ish characters. Um, mm. But unlike in the adaptations, where there is a whole bunch of ridiculous hoo-ha going on as to the heart of gold that Michael Raphael has underneath, and he's just a prince waiting to throw off his disguise and, and become the shining star that he is, there really are no illusions about Michael Raphael in the text except maybe at the end. And we will get to that when we get to depictions stuck in their time. But Professor Wanstead's pronouncement of him is really bleak. He says he has made a certain way. He is crooked. He's a bad lot. He'll always be in trouble. He's dishonest. Nobody, nothing could make him go straight. I am well assured of that. And in that way, he reminded me a little of James Bentley in Mrs. McGinty's Dead. Both of them are men unfairly saddled with crimes that they didn't commit. And both of them are ultimately, I think, unworthy of what Poirot in that case and Miss Marple in this case does for them because they're not the point. The injustice is the point. And yet, I think to pull that off, you do have to draw a convincing character. Um, and Christie does with Michael Raphael. So I, where do you land on, in this category, Jamie? 
in terms of numbers or yeah before I do that I just want to say can we talk about what a brilliant name Verity Hunt is for (laughs) the dead girl it's just the perfect name for an unknown victim the the hunting of truth I, I I just absolutely in awe of what a lovely wonderful name that is so I suspect we are going to have slightly different scores for uh, the book-specific characters. I found this really hard to rank because it's a bit of a mix of really outstanding and what I found quite disappointing. Mm -hmm. So in the end, I went bang down the middle and went for five. Oh, okay. We're not actually as far off as you would think. I ranked it at a seven. So I'm happy to split the difference and and go for a six if you'd like. Let's do it. All right. That actually feels right to me. I take your point about the tour. It's a lot of characters too. It's it's a lot of people who are not really singing. Let's move on to setting and tone now, sort of our catch-all category. I want to start us off with setting. I think as to physical place that the Bradbury Scott's old manor house is very well rendered. And it's not that I can see it super well. It's more that I can feel it. I can feel the atmosphere there. And that's of course, what is significant about it. And what I think Christy renders so effectively, this is what uh, Miss Marple uh, says about it or what she thinks about it rather in one of these lovely interior passages where we have access to her thoughts. There was a melancholy here in this house, thought Miss Marple. It was impregnated somehow with sorrow, a sorrow that could not be dispersed or removed since it had penetrated too deep. It had sunk in. She shivered suddenly. And we have a lot of passages like that. I think they're just fantastic. The one part of the house I can see, of course, are its gardens, which are important for obvious reasons. And I really love this, but this is my favorite fun fact I learned while doing research for this episode. But per Christie biographer Janet Morgan, Apparently, Agatha Christie herself had a ruined greenhouse of her own at Winterbrook, which had, oh yes, a tangle of polygonum bald shuanicum, that same vine with white flowers over it, just like at the old manor houses. And I love the image of an octogenarian Christie staring at this ruin in her backyard and then just plopping it right into her latest murder mystery. Just brilliant. I love it. She looks at it and thinks, I'll hide a body there. Yep. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, the, the setting feels real to me. Um, if not the most iconic of Christie's settings, I think we can say. And the idea of a tour of England's stately homes and gardens really does suggest you're going to get something a little different to what you are getting. Uh, if you just sort of read the blurb about what's going to happen in this book. But what we do see is a lot of people at home really miss marple at home and the sisters at home and that's so well drawn and fits the interiority of the book so well yeah i i was expecting to rank it lower than i ended up ranking it for um tone and setting because remembering it was something quite different to actually reading it it feels much more immediate when you're rereading it i agree with you actually i think um Her setting is strong. I'd love to also just point out that the site of Miss Temple's accident is referred to at one point as gray weathers. That's weathers without an A in it. I'm referring to, you know, old English word for sheep. Um, That is an actual place in Dartmoor in Devon where there is a pair of prehistoric stone circles. So Christy, I think, loves to showcase Devon whenever she can. So I just wanted to point that out. And then even as to time... 
Time, I think, as a setting is a little bit more of a mixed bag here because there are moments, I think, that put this book squarely in the 70s, even as opposed to the 60s. And there's one that I want to quote because it's another example of Christy railing against the youths, which amuses me no end. Girls are said to mature earlier. That is physically true, though in a deeper sense of the word, they mature late. They remain childish longer, childish in the clothes they like to wear, childish with their floating hair, their baby doll nightdresses, their gym slips and shorts, all children's fashions. They wish not to become adult, not to have to accept our kind of responsibility. And yet, like all children, they want to be thought grown up and free to do what they think are grown up things. And that leads sometimes to tragedy and sometimes to the aftermath of tragedy. It's a very grumpy passage there about the youngins, but floating hair, baby doll dresses, gym slips and shorts and get me some recreational cocaine because it's the seventies. <laughs> apparently uh, that's just, I mean, those are specific, you know, fashion's very specific, I think to the early seventies. And then there's also this bizarre moment when Miss Marple is in the post office and she's checking out some book covers of contemporary horror novels. She references whatever happened to baby Jane which is a bit of an odd reference since that novel came out in 1960. And then the movie that most of us are probably familiar with came out in 1962. So that wasn't exactly a contemporary reference at the time, but maybe Christy had a copy lying around. I do appreciate that the, the postmistress carps about going too far with the jacket covers of these books. Cause we know that Christy often had a lot of agita about her own book covers the book doesn't need to be set in the seventies. It's set in the seventies because that's when Christy wrote it. And I think sometimes I, I do appreciate when books feel like they have to be set in the time in which Christy wrote them. You know, that is actually something to recommend third girl, believe it or not. And there's a reason why I think it's really easy to just take this book and plop it into an earlier time, which is what both of the adaptations do. But it is also evocative, I think, in certain ways of the time in which it is written, not just the clothes, but also the fact that Verity Hunt is sexually active. Christie makes two references to that. And both times they feel not only non-condemnatory, but even casual, I would say. And that's a far cry from the young Edwardian woman who wrote The Mysterious Affair at Styles, or who created Chipper Tuppence, who forbore from smoking or crossing her legs in her father's company. I mean, Christie really did change with the times. And I want to bring that up as I always do, because I think people constantly say that she didn't and she did. So this book does have that going for it as to setting as well. Yeah. She's absolutely observing what's going on around her as sharply as ever. And people have argued that uh, she's losing some mental faculties here when she's writing, but you can see that her observation is pinpoint accurate all the way. And I wouldn't say she completely understands those changes, but she's very, very honest about how mystifying it is to someone of an older generation and how that's probably on them or on the older person is just not going to understand what's going on. So Miss Marple and a lot of her cronies in this book get very confused by ambiguous gender norms and youthful rebellion. And some of it is presented more sympathetically than other bits. But ultimately, there is no judgment, I would say, on either of the young women for being sexually active. There is no judgment on young people for embracing these trends and fads that uh, some of the older characters think are a bit silly. There is a bit of mystification, but no judgment. And I think that's not necessarily the approach to changing times that we readily associate with Agatha Christie. 
but it's very much a novel of the 70s and it's also very much a novel written by an edwardian or victorian in the 70s I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that this book does quite well when we compare it to Passenger to Frankfurt, which is obsessed with the evilness or or dangers of youth and naivete. We get a little bit of that, but it's really just flashes. It does not preoccupy the book like it does in Passenger to Frankfurt. There was one section that that made me chuckle, I think, a little bit at the book's expense. And it's when Miss Marple is saying, one does hear of young people doing very extraordinary things now nowadays. You know, putting things in horses' eyes, smashing legation windows and attacking people, throwing stones at people, and it's usually being done by somebody young, isn't it? I was like, I guess I'm not sure what you're talking about there, putting things in horses' eyes. That sounds really awful and cruel, but uh, that is like literally not something I ever even knew was a thing. (laughs) I would imagine that's something she'd read in the paper. Yeah. In the she same was doing way her you... perusal of the paper, right? Her, her shocked <laughs> and horrified perusal. <laughs> yes, that's uh, referenced in Passenger to Frankfurt um, in those uh, very dramatic, almost bullet points uh, at the beginning of that book. You see bits of this in some of the later Christie's. In um, one of the ones you've yet to read, there's a moment when a character just breaks off to say how annoying it is when the postman comes while you're trying to write kind of thing. Um, so some of these things do create Right. I have one big issue or element of the book that I want to discuss as to theme, which I think we'll just, again, put in this catch-all category of setting and tone. But before I get to that, I also just wanted to note that you know, the criminal psyche is another prevailing theme here, as it so often is in Christie. And Professor Wanstead, he's a pathologist and a psychologist. He does a lot of the spouting about these matters, which is very much par for the course. Doctor characters often say a lot of shocking and questionable things in Christie, and we will get to that in a moment in depiction stuck in their time. But he talks about how the criminal mindset may not be the criminal's fault since it's due to biology. And when I read that, I was just struck by the fact that we've been getting arguments like that from very characters, usually doctors and Christie for a long time now. And I had to look it up, but the language has changed slightly, but the argument really hasn't. When we compare what Dr. Haydock says in Murder at the Vicarage with what Professor Wanstead says over 40 years later, here's Dr. Haydock. He says, suppose it's all a question of glandular secretion. Too much of one gland, too little of another, and you get your murderer, your thief, your habitual criminal. I believe the time will come and we'll be horrified to think of the long centuries in which we've punished people for disease, which they can't help, poor devils. You don't hang a man for tuberculosis. And then Professor Wanstead says in this book, the mis- fits are to be pitied. Yes, they are to be pitied, if I may say so, for the genes with which they are born and over which they have no control themselves. I pity epileptics the same way. So she's updated her language a bit. We get genes instead of glands, although later in the book, Archdeacon Brabazon actually does mention glands. He talks about glands overworking or not working. Um, He also mentions chromosomes and genes. But she's saying much the same thing. And the reason why I wanted to highlight it is I'm reasonably sure that Agatha Christie herself does not agree with that proposition. And I think so often readers and critics of Christie fall into the trap, and I'll include myself in this, of just assuming that everything Christie espouses is a personal opinion held by her. And for decades now, she's been creating characters who say, well, maybe these criminals really can't help it. And it's just due to biology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a valid argument. And it's something that she stuck with, but it's not necessarily what her opinion was. And I think it's just interesting that she has that consistency over the years. And I just want to point it out as 
advocating a layered approach to the various ideas that she lays out in the course of these books. Yeah. And one of the things about Christy is that the characters who say this are often men. Mm. And in her professional life and her daily life, she was often surrounded by men who said they knew her job better than she did, who would tell her things she clearly already knew and things, and would talk about crime and criminology. And there was a big movement, especially um, in the mid to late 20th century, uh, in the last few decades in which she was writing for crime fiction to focus on the motivations of the criminal and to almost, you know, starting with um, Patricia Highsmith, to make the criminal the focus of your attention, your sympathy and your focus. And Christie was never interested in getting into the mind of a murderer Mm-hmm. beyond a sort of plot level, what really interested her and what she wanted people to focus on in crime, in her novels and in real crime, because she did a small amount of true crime journalism, if you like, and it would be the victims or the innocent. And it was the protection of innocence that really bothered her. And she talks in her autobiography about why do people not consider the innocent who have died or been hugely affected by these crimes? Why are we so interested in the murderer? And so what causes someone to act the way they do is not so interesting to Christie as getting the truth and protecting the innocent. And that's something that comes through, I think, in these books where she talks about Michael Raphael or or, or James Bentley as being irredeemably a bad lot, but they didn't do this crime, so they shouldn't be punished for this crime, but someone else should. And that's the key thing, because the innocent have to be protected. And we've sort of joked a little bit about the body count, but part of that, I think, is there'll always be a bit of a body count in these things where you're opening up a crime from the past, because however long something seems buried and rested, if the problem, the evil is there, it's going to persist. And so she's much more focused, I think, in this book, especially on making people accountable, but also protecting people and less interested in the causes of criminality and things. And she shows pompous men often or even likable men, but always men Mm. going down the wrong track, if you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. A lot lot of mansplaining, right? (laughs) Agreed. And I always think to myself how horrified she would have been by the so-called sopranosication or, you know, the raising up of the anti-hero that's happened in sort of the 21st century and like the renaissance of, of TV to a certain extent. It was already happening, which is what she's reacting to in in, in those essays that she wrote, but it, it, it only continued and I think deepened. And I don't necessarily agree with Christy, you know, but um, mm. I, I certainly don't think she would have relished that. Um, and she she would have had a lot to say about it. Okay, so before we rank this category, I think to a certain extent, one of the big questions a lot of readers have about this novel is whether or not the love between Clotilde and Verity is a same-sex attraction. Is this a lesbian love that is being depicted here in the book? And I think it actually is a complicated question, which speaks to the nuances of what Christie is portraying here in the book. Because I think that you could certainly make the case that there is 
some sort of a same-sex romantic attraction happening in the book. We ser- we have the depiction of Clotilde herself. You know, she's portrayed, quote-unquote, mannishly. I talked about that when I was talking about the obfuscation that it seems like a man committed this crime, but in fact, it was a woman. To a certain extent, that's because we expected a man to be a romantic rival to Michael Raphael. And we also have you know, this from Miss Marple when she confronts Clotilde in that dramatic sequence at the end. She says to her, she, i.e. Verity, wanted to escape, to escape from the burden of the bondage of love she was living in with you. She wanted a normal woman's life, to live with the man of her choice, to have children by him. She wanted marriage and the happiness of normality. We also are told that the way Verity actually died, it's described as Grecian as it were, in tradition. One cup of hemlock, even if it wasn't hemlock. And fast forward if you haven't read Halloween Party, but for me, that had echoes of Miranda's attempted murder in that book, which also had some extremely, in that case, problematic sexual undertones. And then finally, I do find it interesting that this book is populated by not one, but two female pairs. We have Miss Barrow and Miss Cook, who are referred to as a couple at one point. Obviously, by the end, we learn that they're hired agents of Jason Raphael, but still. Um, And we also have the elderly pair of Miss Lumley and Miss Bentham. I can't believe we haven't mentioned them yet. They're so fascinating. They are also presented as a united pair. However, I would just like to quote what Christie biographer Janet Morgan has to say about this issue. She wrote that the motive for the crime, the passion of a forceful, possessive woman for an impressionable girl, was both a powerful and an ordinary theme. It is, incidentally, nonsense to suggest, as some critics have done, that in extreme old age, Agatha suddenly broached more daring subjects, for from the beginning, her books explored complex and unusual sexual and emotional relationships of a type familiar to anyone living in a village, let alone Chelsea in the 1970s. What I take from that is, sure, there might be an element of some sort of of, you know, sexual attraction or interest in Clotilde's regard for Verity. But is that really all that revolutionary or even interesting in the course of the book? And are we simply being reactionary by reading too much into that or making too much of it? And I actually think that while there may be an element of same-sex attraction there in Clotilde's regard for Verity, the more significant sort of element that makes this love monstrous is the fact that it's a possessive mother love. And this is where I think if we read the book in context of the canon, it it really clarifies things because Christie, her entire career railed against this type of love, perhaps most famously or infamously an ordeal by innocence, but it's also there and they do it with mirrors. And I'd argue that it's even in Cat Among the Pigeons because she shows the healthy flip side of such a relationship in that book. Basically, Christie thought it was terrible for a mother to pay too much attention to her children. She thought it was stifling. And I've said this before, but it's a convenient theory for a mother who, because of the way her life worked out, was off working and traveling a lot. And she had to leave her own daughter with her sister Madge, or she left her in boarding school. I also approach this this issue with a lot of humility because I think it's an issue where we sitting here in 2022 have a significant bias the other way, given how many of us have become insane helicopter parents who won't let our children out of our sight. So it strikes us as very strange, this notion that parents can smother with too much attention, but I think it's actually a valid perspective. 
I feel like in Christy, the situation often arises when the mother is not genetically related to the child. It's not always the case. She has a couple of cloying biological mothers in Cat Among the Pigeons, for example, but we see that in They Do It With Mirrors. It's the relationship between a mother and her adoptive daughter. And then very much so in Ordeal by Innocence, where Rachel Argyle has adopted all five of her children and totally smothered them and destroyed them. Christy is just super weird when it comes to adoptive relationships. And in a way, isn't that what we have here? Because Verity's parents were traveling when they died. They left their child in a good boarding school under the care of Miss Temple. I would imagine that Verity's birth mother was probably a lot like Julia Upjohn's in Cat Among the Pigeons. And I maintain that that relationship is an idealized form of Christie's own relationship with her daughter, Rosalind. Uh, but then there was a horrible accident and Verity fell into the hands of Clotilde, who proceeded to smother her in an adoptive mother role. So I think with that in mind, I would just like to quote one other passage from the book, which is Archdeacon Brabazon's description of what happened to Verity Hunt. And this is what he says. She had lost her real guardians, her parents. She had entered on her new life after their death at an age when a schoolgirl arrives at having a crush on someone. Someone, an attractive mistress, anything from the games mistress to the mathematics mistress or a prefect or an older girl, a state that does not last for very long is merely a natural part of life. Then from that, you go on to the next stage when you realize that what you want in your life is what complements yourself, a relationship between a man and a woman. Clotilde Bradbury Scott was exceptionally good to Verity, and Verity, I think, gave her what I should call hero worship. She was a personality as a woman, handsome, accomplished, interesting. I think Verity adored her in an almost romantic way, and I think Clotilde came to love Verity as though she were her own daughter. I think that passage could be interpreted and has been interpreted by contemporary readers as alluding to a quasi-lesbian love on Clotilde's part, but if we pay attention and read closely, the romantic regard is coming from Verity not Clotilde. It's, and it's Clotilde's mother love that is the problem here. I'm now going to shut up and let you speak because I'm very curious to see how you feel about this, having written Queering Agatha Christie. And I remember in that book, Jamie, you talked about the fact that often when you know you would tell people that you were writing a book called Queering Agatha Christie, they had two questions for you. One was, is Poirot gay? And the second was, did you know that there are lesbians and a murder is announced? I'm curious if anyone ever asked you, so is Nemesis about like a lesbian love affair or what? Because I do think that that is often something that people talk about in this book. And for me, I just think that's a total simplification of what Christie is doing. And I think as is so often the case, when you read the text, she's actually being more nuanced. She's sort of writing in shades of gray rather than black and white. Verity was at an impressionable age where she allowed Clotilde total access to her and Clotilde was trying to be her mother. If anything, I think this story is not homophobic. It's adoptive mother phobic or whatever you want to call that. But I just think there's a lot more going on here than a quote unquote unspoken lesbian love. And I will now shut up and I'm curious what you think about all this. Long story short, I agree. And I think I talk about Nemesis a little bit in Queering Christie. You do, but you don't talk about it as much as I thought, because I looked prior. I was like, well, I need to see what uh, Jamie, and you do mention it, but not as much as I would have guessed you would have. Because (laughs) that book is about immediately post-war fiction. So it cuts off at 52 and 1952. I do mention it as what I think of as a rewriting of uh, Sleeping Murder. Mm. And in that context... The monstrous thing about Clotilde's love for Verity is not that they're two women. Clotilde is in a position of authority and care 
over verity and responsibility. That model of relationship should not spill into the romantic model. And of course, I mean, I highlighted the same passage as you, of course I did, because mm-hmm. um, about the developing a crush on a schoolmistress. Uh, it's not the first time Christie writes about this. She writes about it in Unfinished Portrait, in which the character based on her develops a crush on a schoolmistress. And then a similar scene, this is my friend Mariana Evans, who co-edited the Bloomsbury book with me, pointed this out. A similar scene appears in her autobiography, but without any reference to the crush on the schoolmistress, which is interesting. So we can see that sort of hero worship from Verity to Clotilde, but in the same way as Egg in Three-Act Tragedy had this hero worship for the um, charming paternalistic Sir Charles Cartwright, it's Mm -hmm. problematic to exploit that in any way. And just like Egg needed to move away from that into a relationship with Oliver Manders, Verity needed to move away from that into a relationship of equals, not into some exploitative power dynamic relationship, whether that's, it's clearly not a sexual relationship, but also clearly she is young and confused and hormonal. People were hormonal in the olden days. And (laughs) she doesn't really understand what's going on in her own body and in her own emotional life. And she's had a a bit of a a screwed up childhood. And that's not to say that homosexuality is a result of a screwed up childhood or anything like that. Of course not. But the monstrousness of the love is, I would agree, that it's an all-consuming, possessive thing. I actually found a note in my very old edition of Nemesis from my undergraduate dissertation, which was a long time ago, where I'd highlighted a bit where Miss Marple's telling Clotilde off and says, it's frightening. You loved Verity too much. She meant everything in the world to you. She was devoted to you until something else came into her life, a different kind of love. And I'd highlighted that with a note saying the mother AC would not be. And that speaks to what you were saying about her model of motherhood, mm-hmm. not being smothering, not being over-encompassing and letting the daughter establish her own life, her own loves, her own mistakes, going off with someone she might not have ended up with forever. But that's her choice to make. And what's so monstrous about Clotilde is that she says she loves Verity, but like any abusive relationship, what she wants is to possess her, to mm. keep her in the garden. Yep. So long story short, I agree. I do understand why people talk about this as a novel that concerns lesbianism. And there is actually a couple mentioned, a lesbian couple that is mentioned, and two elderly women living together. They'd been in the service together. They appeared to be a very happy couple, yet uh, one day one of them killed the other. Uh, She sent for an old friend and said, I have killed Louisa, it's very sad, but I saw the devil looking out of her eyes. And that's just a throwaway thing that could have been about any couple where one of them had gone mad. But uh, it just happens to be about two ladies who live together. It's a reality of the world in 1970. Of course, there were all sorts of couples around. And of course, why would it be more unusual to feature that in this novel than it would to feature the casual references to 
hairstyles or LSD taking or whatever <laughs> that um, Christy occasionally gets right in these books. So yes, I would say lesbianism is mentioned in this book. I would not agree with some critics who have said it is a homophobic presentation, that it's presented as the motive and the monstrous crime is monstrous because it's lesbian. I would say it's presented as a facet of human complexity and it's not necessarily a presentation I agree with at all. But what I do find much more interesting is the different kinds of love and the different kinds of loneliness that are presented here and given much more power. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, love as one of the L's, one of those four L's I think isn't explored as often as perhaps it deserves to be or as deeply mm -hmm. as it is in this book. And it's, that's, that's why this book is fascinating. And yet, thank you for pulling out that quote about that, that throwaway reference to that female <laughs> couple is so interesting that, that she chose to put that in there. But I agree. I had the same thought that they just happen to be two women. There's no indication that she's using that as an example because they're two women. Yes. So it's really interesting. The only other point I want to make is that, you know, and we've talked about around this, but readability wise, which is something Catherine and I would often talk about in this category, the book does well and not so well, right? Because I, I think that upon my reread, I was surprised by how specific the book is in terms of its placement in time and space, <laughs> and also by how well constructed it actually is, especially for late career Christie. But we do have the looseness or the, the baggy storytelling issue that we often have in late career Christie. And right around when Miss Marple arrives at the old manor house for the first time, that's when I first wrote in my margins that this book was getting seriously meandering. I mean, at that <laughs> point, we've had nearly 100 pages, at least in my edition, of Miss Marple having no idea what sort of mystery she's supposed to solve. She's just suspecting people for no reason or due to her own prejudice, which Christy mm -hmm. calls out, her own xenophobia. And that's fun. I'll follow Miss Marple anywhere she goes. But again, I just can't help thinking if this book were written earlier, it would be tighter. And Miss Marple, her herself even gets exasperated. She yells at Professor Wanstead to, for goodness sake, tell me something about halfway through the book. So Christy herself, I think, was aware of the issue, but she didn't necessarily do anything about it or she didn't do enough about it. And also, interestingly, characters, especially Miss Temple, refer to Verity Hunt early-ish in the book, but we don't actually get Verity Hunt's name till nearly three-fifths of the way through the book. Yes, I did calculate. And that's crazy to me that it takes that long. But all in all, I do think that this book is actually highly readable compared to all of the books in the oeuvre, but especially compared to the books surrounding it within the late 60s and the early 70s. I would come out at a seven for setting and tone, Jamie. Okay, I'm completely happy to be guided by you because I've written down so many numbers which are all <laughs> over the place. It is a novel of contradictions, but I, I think a seven feels about right. Okay, fantastic. All right, so let's get to our final category, which is depictions stuck in their time. And there is a caretaker at the local cemetery in Jocelyn St. Mary, which is the town near the old manor house, who opines that young girls are getting killed because, quote, their mums haven't got time to look after them properly nowadays, what with going out to work so much. And Christie writes that Miss Marple rather agreed with his criticism. 
that jarred for me, but this is just a prelude, of course, to the big issue that this book has when it comes to depictions stuck in their time. And it starts, as it so often does, as you called out, Jamie, with a man, a professional man spouting his opinions. This would be Professor Wanstead. And here's what he has to say while he's telling Miss Marple about Michael Raphael's history. And to be clear, he's not talking about Verity Hunt here. He's actually talking about someone who Michael Raphael knew before he met Verity. And unfortunately, we never learn this woman's name. And before I get into this, I should just say that we're going to be talking about issues of sexual assault, which is a disturbing, if not traumatizing topic for many. So I just wanted to make that clear before proceeding. That being said, what Professor Wanstead says about Michael Raphael and this woman he was involved with before Verity Hunt is that he had conceivably raped her, but he had not attempted to strangle her. And in my opinion, I have seen a great many cases which come before the assizes. It seemed to me highly unlikely that there was a very definite case of rape. Girls, you must remember, are far more ready to be raped nowadays than they used to be. Their mothers insist very often that they should call it rape. The girl in question had had several boyfriends who had gone further than friendship. I did not think it counted very greatly as evidence against him. So I put no fewer than eight exclamation points in the margin of my text uh, when I read that. Uh, the notion that rape somehow has to involve strangulation. And I think that perhaps the sentence, girls you remember, are far more ready to be raped nowadays than they used to be, may be the most horrific sentence in a Christie novel, though it does have some stiff competition. Unfortunately, we're not done. Uh, we then get this delightful bit from the lawyer, Mr. Broadrib. Hey, look, another professional man espousing an opinion. Uh, he's talking about Michael Raphael's previous record, and he says, earlier cases of assault and rape. Well, we all know what rape is nowadays. Mum tells the girl she's got to accuse the young man of rape, even if the young man hasn't had much chance, with the girl at him all the time to come to the house while mum's away at work or dad's gone on holiday. Doesn't stop badgering him until she's forced him to sleep with her. Then, as I say, mum tells the girl to call it rape. There's also some, I'll call it slut shaming, that happens vis-a-vis uh, -vis Nora Broad. Miss Marple describes her as a girl who had boyfriends and was, I understand, very ready to have boyfriends. And she later calls her a sly, sexy little village girl. But by far the most problematic depiction, I think, is just this portrayal of Michael Raphael's past record as to sexual assault. And at the end, when Miss Marple meets Michael Raphael, because she does actually meet him at the end of the novel, for me, my sense was that we're kind of just supposed to be thrilled that he's out of jail and wish him the best. And Miss Marple says, I hope you've got a very good time coming to you. Our country is in rather a bad way just now, but you'll probably find some job or other that you might quite enjoy doing. And then later she opines that the great thing to hope for is that he'll meet a really nice girl. That's what Miss Marple says about a previously convicted rapist or sexual assaulter that it's apparently incumbent upon some woman to save him. And here's the thing. We can absolutely make the argument that by putting these opinions in the mouths of professional men, Christie is asking us to question them. We can give her that benefit of the doubt. I'm curious if you would give her that benefit of the doubt. I will be honest. I cannot completely give her the benefit of that doubt because it just mm. doesn't feel that way to me in this book. There are no clear refutations of those opinions that she's putting in the mouths of those professional men. And it definitely feels as though Miss Marple agrees with them and yes. in Miss Marple agreeing with them that her creator agrees with them. And I think that's really rough and it's really hard. And I know it's something from just talking anecdotally with other friends and scholars of Christie. It's something that is extremely hard about this book. 
Yeah, it's a difficult one and not something I'm going to try to defend. There are dodgy discussions of this topic in some of the earlier books, and there it's much easier to make that argument. It's in the voice of an unsympathetic character. It's reflecting a dominant social attitude. Here it is an idea that's so repeated, these comments they are repeated by several characters they do seem to be endorsed and as you say not challenged Mm -hmm. and it is really upsetting to read and one of the really horrible things for me was I have the audiobook as well read by the lovely Joan Hickson and hearing these words in her voice was really really a wrench yeah it's not something I think can be or should be explained away it's very much the product of someone with opinions I think most of us would disagree with and think are unfortunate at best, uh, writing in a time she can't keep up with. And it is a sad blight on what is really a treasure of a novel. Yeah. I'm not going to defend it. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree with that. I, th- I, I think it's, it's unfortunate and it's why we have this category because it really is part of the reading experience, unfortunately. And when, when those stuck in their time references are glancing, you know, Catherine and I have not made many deductions or made no deductions at all, but it's not glancing here. It's a through line um, in the book and it's sort of tied very much so to the murder that's being investigated and, you know, the reason why, and it's just, it's, it's just very much a part of the the reading experience. And this is one case where I know for a fact that Catherine herself had a huge problem with this in this book, because we actually did discuss it before she passed away because we knew this book was coming up. So uh, for her sake alone, but not just for her sake, for my sake too, as a, as a reader, I definitely think we, we need to make significant deductions here. I, I would also make a slight note about Christie's weirdness as to adoptive mothers in this category, which is something that's come up in other books, nowhere near as bad as it is in Ordeal by Innocence, but it's absolutely there. And I find it distasteful here as I did in that book and other books. And I'm sure, again, that there are some people who feel this book is homophobic, but as we just discussed, I'm not one of them. And I'm heartened by the fact that you're not one of them either, because I know you have thought much more thoroughly and in a more enlightened and scholarly way about those very issues. So that makes me that much more confident in not uh, advocating for any deductions on that score in this book, because I don't think that this is a homophobic book. But I do think there's the adoptive mother weirdness. And then I think this is a huge issue. So for me, I came out on three deductions. I'm curious how you feel about that. Okay, so I wasn't entirely sure how it worked with this category, I'm afraid. Fair enough, fair enough. (laughs) So I wasn't sure how how it worked, so I I sort of gave it two out of ten on the grounds that I can't get past the rape thing. So I, I, yeah, I've probably graded it in the wrong way, I'm afraid. No, that's fine. I know, and it's it's a little strange. I mean, we generally will deduct anywhere between one and five deductions. I Ah, think think at first we went up to like six deductions for man in the brown suit, but we've (laughs) since scaled back on, on that score. So three deductions is a lot. It's a very extreme, I wouldn't say it's an extreme 
deduction, but it's a significant one. I, I would honestly say it's. I, I have such a problem with uh, that element of the book specifically that uh, I would take away whatever the maximum you can take away is. So if well, that's five. You know what, Jamie? I. It's funny. As we were just having this discussion, three is what I had written down, but I am feeling like that might not be enough. And if you're advocating for five, I actually think at the very least that four. Um, okay would be appropriate. So let's say four, and I'm just looking back at our grid now to see if we have given, uh, we did four deductions for the big four and oh, oh wow. Actually, the only time we went above five deductions, which has still stuck to this day, we scaled back on man in the brown suit is hickory dickory doc, which has eight (laughs) deductions, which is warranted. So I think four is actually the right number. Fantastic. We can be ruthless like Miss Marple. Exactly, exactly. All right, so it has come to that magical portion of the episode when I get to tally up the scores and we can see where Nemesis falls in the rankings. So for this novel, we have 6 plus 3 plus 10 plus 6 plus 7 minus 4 for a grand total of 28 points, putting Nemesis in a big tie with a number of books. And now we get to figure out where it should go in and among these books. So are you ready, Jamie, to hear which titles have 28 points? Let's go. All right. Um, And this is ranging from 35th to 39th place out of now 62 books. And that feels right to me, actually, as a general area. It's not at the bottom, but it's in the bottom half, at the top of the bottom half, if you will. Uh, We've got A Pocket Full of Rye, The Man in the Brown Suit, N or M, the Secret Adversary, and One to Buckle My Shoe. Where would you put Nemesis in there? Ooh, it's better than A Pocket Full of Rye for sure. I suppose it <laughs> is. You know what? I think it's actually better than all of those books. I think it is. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we put it at the top of that pack. And you know what's really funny? Right above it is a Caribbean mystery. and right above that is they do it with mirrors and so we now have four marvel novels actually all in a row there but i think that feels like it makes sense are you happy with its placement yes being next to a caribbean mystery it was clearly meant to be (laughs) all right well jamie it's honestly not hyperbole to say that this was just an utter delight i had so much fun discussing this book with you not to get too emotional about it but especially in Catherine's absence it's so heartening to be able to connect with like-minded christy freaks and fanatics such as yourself and i feel like i was just able to do that for like the last two hours um so thank you for that experience personally. Thank thank you. You and Catherine have given me so many hours of pleasure and companionship, even when I haven't been really talking to you, (laughs) just sort of listening to you and shouting at the podcast and joining in, even though no (laughs) one could hear me. It's absolutely a huge privilege to be here and just so much fun. Thank you so much, Jamie. I thought that I would have a good time with Jamie discussing Nemesis, but I have to say that conversation far, far exceeded my expectations. I know that this is a ridiculously long episode. I feel like at this point in the history of the podcast, if you are still listening to these episodes, more is more. And I hope that you enjoyed listening to me and Jamie discuss and analyze Nemesis at great, great length. 
The truth is that in the early years, I, believe it or not, was actually the one who insisted on keeping our episodes to under an hour in length, which is why some of those early episodes are so aggressively edited and why they feature me speaking at quite a fast clip because I wanted to shoehorn in as much information and analysis as I possibly could. Catherine would always tell me not to worry so much about the length. She would say, if people want to listen to us for close to an hour, they'll be fine listening to us for over an hour. And as we continued to do this year after year, I realized that she was right. (laughs) And I like to think that she is giving me a big, I told you so with this episode and some of the recent episodes we've done, which are extremely long, but I think it reflects an unwillingness on my part to let go (laughs) of this project for a lot of different reasons. So I would just ask for your indulgence (laughs) in listening to these overlong episodes. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I know I enjoyed the heck out of creating it and speaking with Jamie. So thank you so much to Jamie Berntal for coming on and lending his expertise to this novel. The next episode of this podcast will not be discussing Christie's story. I am actually sitting down for an interview with a very exciting contemporary mystery author. It is none other than Alex Michaelides, who is the author of the best-selling and how psychological thriller, The Silent Patient, which came out a few years ago. And just last year, he published his second novel, The Maidens. I will be speaking with him about both of those contemporary thrillers. He is a big Agatha Christie fan. He is a listener to the podcast, which excites me to no small degree, as you can imagine. So I would encourage you, if you happen to be one of the very few people who did not read The Silent Patient when it came out in 2019, to read it now. uh, And also to check out The Maidens before that episode. The next novel on our docket is Elephants Can Remember. I'm going to tease, just like I did with Jamie, who my co-host will be for that episode. But it's very exciting. And let's just say it's a name you've heard many, many times on this podcast. Until then, I would, of course, love to hear from you. If you would like to hear more from me and from me and Catherine in back episodes, you could subscribe to the podcast's Patreon account over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. I had made my most recent offering of the Christie short story Magnolia Blossom free for a limited time. The next episode, which will be for patrons only, uh, will be discussing the Death on the Nile movie movie in excruciating detail. I know you would expect nothing less of me. You could, of course, email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at allaboutthedame and on Instagram at allaboutagatha. And if you haven't yet done so, I'd really, really appreciate it if you could give the podcast a rating and or a review. It still helps. It's still important. And it would still mean a lot to me. Happy reading. And I will see you next time. Bye. Bye.